Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. I think this may be verbal diorama. Verbal diorama? Are you sure you want to be messing around with this thing? It's just a podcast. No harm ever came from listening to a podcast. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone uh welcome to verbal diorama this is em captain of this ship and we are finally 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 going to talk about the mummy and i am so so excited uh to talk about the mummy i am very pleased to introduce a special guest the most elusive man in podcasting <laughs> one of the nicest men in podcasting jason from wulong talks hi jason hi Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me, Em. Yes, I am indeed the most <laughs> ubiquitous person in podcasting. And that is a title <laughs> I'm now going to get printed onto a T-shirt because it's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, because we, we've tried to do this a, a couple of times and uh, it's, it's never seemed to materialise. And I kind of joked before we started recording that I kind of felt like there was a bit of a curse yeah. on this on this particular episode because... You know, we've tried a couple of times. I couldn't do it one time. Then you couldn't do it the other time. And But yeah, now we're finally here. <laughs> we're finally together to talk about the mummy. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. You know, we've, um, myself and, and Rich at Wulong Talks have really been, you know, just so amazed by the growth of Verbal Diorama and, and, and how quickly it's become, you know, one of the the number one sort of names in in podcasting for movies and, um, <laughs> it's you know it's, it's amazing <laughs> everywhere i go on social media I, I see verbal diorama being talked about and shared and it's wonderful you know i'm the kind of podcaster who loves to see you know other podcasters doing well especially you know good people like yourself em so it's it's an honor to be on the show thank you very much for for being so patient <laughs> with us and and thank you for having me <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much. But none of that is true. And I, 
<laughs> literally that's good enough <laughs> but you know i will pay you that 20 quid later <laughs> for saying all that um but yeah that i mean that is very nice of you to say but i i'm just like literally one person just there's, there's basic there's so many people out there who were doing more amazing brilliant things with podcasting than i am but um i i really do appreciate that that's so kind of you to say and i i feel a bit embarrassed <laughs> now <laughs> because oh, i genuinely was not expecting you to say that um but yeah that that is so kind thank you so much and obviously and the thing is as well because i look up to you so much that it's wow that 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 you kind of put me I, I, I don't really know what to say. That doesn't happen very often. Have, have I messed um, up like but, the whole plan now? <laughs> <doing> no! <laughs> no! No! But that, no, that's so kind. Thank you. I just, you know, I, I, I would never, ever, ever in a million years think that I was, you know, the millionth best <laughs> podcast out there. So, um, but I, 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 I try, you know, um, but that was very kind. Thank you. Um, oh, I've kind of gone off gone off my, my train of thought now because I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> um, but anyway, obviously, I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time. We last spoke, I believe it was in March, I think, yeah. when I guested on your show. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Captain Marvel, uh, which was literally the first time I'd ever guested on a show and we had such a fantastic time and I mean it when I say that you are literally the nicest guy in podcasting just like full stop so you were so kind to me and we had such a lovely chat and so I was I was pretty desperate to get you on here because I was like I need to have him on here because we need to talk about this and we mentioned the mummy I believe uh when we were talking back in March and I was like you know ding 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 let's let's do the mummy because it's awesome and I love it. Um, but before we go into the mummy, so what I like to do is I like to just sort of update everyone on what's been going on sort of on the good ship verbal diorama. And obviously this is going to be the first episode that I put out in August. And um, I've coined it Augstravaganza because it's a little thing that I wanted to do in August where I'm actually going to be putting out uh, one episode a week which is not something that I normally do. It's going to be quite a big achievement for me to do it, but I'm going to try really, really hard. Um, So I have episodes every Sunday in August, and then the final Saturday in August, I have a special episode going out on Uh, one of the greatest animated movies ever made and I haven't announced what it's going to be and I'm not going to just yet because I'm also going to be doing like a giveaway and all of that so basically lots of planning is going into my August it's going to be super busy um, but I'm basically making a little bit of time to uh, guest on some other shows so yesterday um, I was on Growing Up Millennial and we talked about a little movie starring Britney Spears called Crossroads. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, which uh, I'd never seen until last week. Okay. And it was interesting. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's all I'm going to yeah. say about Crossroads. Uh, um, obviously, you'll have to wait to uh, till that episode comes out. I believe it's coming out in September. So it's going to be a little while about my thoughts on Crossroads. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot mm. of thoughts. Um, and... Um, 
and then this month I've got I've got a couple of guest slots booked on. Um, I'm going on Black Girls Do Stuff too with Nick and Tiffany. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be so much fun because they are super cool girls. Mm, awesome. And then I'm going down under. Lit- not literally. I was going to say literally, but that's not right. Figuratively, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm going to be on For Your Reference with Katie and Oti, who are also incredibly cool people. So, uh, uh, and I think some point at this month, I'm going to be interviewed by Pulp Serial, uh, but we haven't actually set a date for that yet. So I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. But, um, but yeah, so my August is going to be busy, <laughs> but I think it's going to be fun. So Jason, what have you and Rich been up to recently? Because, um, obviously you've, you've kind of been not offline, but you've not really been around all that much. Cause I know you've had quite a lot of stuff going yeah. on, but, uh, but you recently dropped an excellent, uh, phase four Marvel episode. So, uh. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that and about what the, what you and um, Rich are up to. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, um, it's it's been a little while. We we took a we, we did a little podcasting gap year, I guess if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> nice. And, you know, backpacked around the um, internet trying to find different things that that we could do. But um, you know, on, on our podcast and, and people who are listening to this who who listen to Will and Talks will know and are probably bored of me saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, I it's not very far off from when I became a, a father for the first time. So um, that's been a, a massive change to my life. And um, it's been a, a joyous experience, but um, a, a very tiring one. <laughs> and uh, mm. as a result of that, it's meant that, you know, unfortunately, Rich and I haven't been able to, to put out as much content as we would like to do with uh, Wulong Talks. But um, you know, in between times, we have been kind of sort of squirreling down different ideas and, and different things that we want to do. Um, you know, we, we always knew we were uh, going to make an appearance here on, on your podcast. And as said, we were delighted to do it. And, you know, as as you mentioned previously, we spoke about this way back in March. So to, to finally get here <laughs> is, is awesome. Um and, you know, aside from that, we're putting some plans in place to make a few appearances ourselves. So we will be appearing nice. on um, a friend of ours podcast called uh, Story by Story, which is from uh, a brand called Maya Mada, um, which is a, a British uh, manga brand. And they basically make manga books um, based around animal characters um, set in a universe that is not dissimilar to our own, but instead of human beings, it's it's kind of anthropomorphic animals um who are fulfilling the roles of of, of different characters um in their stories and and they're currently working on on a like a concept podcast called story by story um which involves uh, them having a different guest every week to talk about their favorite story and and what that story kind of impact has on 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 them and on the guest um so rich and i will be appearing on that very soon as well and, and we're really looking forward to doing that um, aside from that, we are also uh, working on a, a series of, of podcasts. We haven't decided yet um, on how many episodes long it will be, but we're going to do one about 90s action movies because uh, Richard <gasps> and I are, are both um, kids of, of Thatcher's era. We're, we're Thatcher's babies. And so, you know, the kind of action movies of the 1990s for us are, are kind of like a, a golden age. Um, and that's why mm. I loved your Speed podcast so much. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, Speed, because Speed is literally the first movie I went to go and see by myself at the cinema. 
um, when it came out because I turned 15 on the day it came out and I was like right I'm going to see speed um, I'm going to take full advantage of this legal status that I now have to walk in legally to a 15 certificate film and sit down and watch it um, and I loved wow. it so it was great to kind of hear your your take on, on the movie and things like that as well so so yeah we've decided we're going to look up uh, quite a few of, of those iconic sort of 90s action movies but also we we want to try and focus on some that people have forgotten about as well so um kind of doing our research through that has, has been a lot of fun and has opened the doors to so many films that we completely forgot about that are actually brilliant um but you know people just don't talk about anymore so um, we're hoping to do that and we're hoping to entice yourself em onto one of those episodes at, at some point so um that should yeah. be super yeah fun. sign me yeah. up <laughs> yeah so that will be super fun so as soon as we've got dates and everything finalized for that um we'll, we'll definitely let you know uh and aside from that we are also um continuing on the uh bebop rewatch which is an, another podcast we do which is um this is quite obscure for, for your audience possibly but um this is all about uh, us re-watching an anime series called Cowboy Bebop. Um, the reason why it's kind of relevant now is because uh, Netflix have, have recently announced that they're doing a live-action version of Cowboy Bebop. No! Really? Year. Yep. Um, and they cast... Because I, I love Cowboy Bebop. Oh, like, awesome. I, I genuinely... I, I, it's not something... It's something that I've not watched in a mm. while. But, um, but yeah, on... Um, Back in the old days of the internet, my screen name for some websites was Faye Valentine. Oh, sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not, obviously not going to go into which websites, you know, no one wants to yeah, know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I used to love Cowboy Bebop. The, the theme song was just... Oh, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, it's we, really we cool. always open every episode by saying it's the greatest anime show of all time. Um, and people can get at us if they don't agree. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that was so incredible about that series was the use of music and, and how they did it. And mm. the whole story behind how um, the composers got involved with it and how they composed each track um, and the amount of thought and detail that went into it and how it kind of um, plays its part in telling the, the story that, you know, they're, they're telling through um through the anime is, is just incredible and so you know with each episode rich and i sit down and we watch a, an, an episode or a session of cowboy bebop and then we kind of go through what happens and um you know point, point out some of the like trivia and, and the different things that, that occur and it's a lot of fun um really a lot of fun and, and even though it's quite niche we've actually managed to get like a little cult following going for it um, which is pretty cool. So again, it, it, it's one of those that it got hit by our, our, our absence, our um, podcasting gap year, but it, it's coming back up. So um, that will be restarting very, very soon. We're, we're hoping to in, bring on a special guest as well, a friend of ours named Jed Shepard, who is a screenwriter and a filmmaker. Um, he's made a number of uh, short movies and he kind of specializes in, in horror. Um, and he's currently working away in Hollywood at the moment. Um, trying to secure some some deals for uh, a few projects that he wants to get off the ground um, but as soon as he's back he's he'll be on the podcast with us and uh, we're delighted to have him on as well so those are the main things that we're kind of working on at, at the moment really wow so basically you guys have got quite a lot 
upcoming, really. Not only are you the nicest guys, you're also the busiest. How am I fitting all of that in now, exactly? <laughs> like, I've said all this stuff, <laughs> but exactly how am I fitting all that in? But yeah, there's quite a lot going on. Well, I guess if you don't have like big aspirations and big dreams and, you know, things that you want to do, then I kind of feel like, what's the point? If you want to do something, you've kind of got to go big or go home. Mm kind of mentality yeah, yeah. and and you're definitely going oh, big yeah. <laughs> because you know managing all of these different projects going forward but i mean the 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 90s action movies one just sounds right up my alley it really does mm. because the 90s was such an iconic era for action movies mm. and um you know you the big tentpole stars like you you know bruce willis arnold schwarzenegger um you know, sort of going from like the late eighties into the early nineties. I mean, they were like, they were the guys that you called if you wanted an action yeah, movie. Um, and then obviously, aforementioned Keanu Reeves, who's my absolute favourite. And I, I'm pretty certain that I've mentioned him on every episode thus far. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe not some of the earlier ones, but definitely some of the later ones. Keanu always kind of gets in there. So there's another mention for Keanu. Um, so, um, just before we talk about The Mummy, can you tell me a little bit about, specifically Wulong Talks, like, how did it actually all come about? Like, how long have you and Rich known each other? Was it just like, you were having a couple of beers and you were like, let's start a podcast? Or, or you know, how exactly did it all come about? Okay, so I'm about to really date us quite badly here. So for those of you who, who don't know our age, you, you might be quite shocked. Um, to hear <laughs> how long Richard and I have known each other. Um, but we first met in 1995, um, and we met in a GCSE retake maths class. Um, at this point, he and I had both left school. Um, we went to different schools, um, but we went to the same sixth form college, and we ended up in the same maths class. And um, at the time that I started college, I was pretty much a delinquent in a sense that um nothing too bad but I just never took anything seriously and um often before a lecture I would be high um I, <laughs> I have no shame in admitting this now but um yeah I would be quite high before I went into any lectures or classes um and we had our first maths class and I didn't want to attend I was considering bunking it off and I was like no you've got to do it you've got to pass GCSE maths I already flunked it in schools um, I've got to do this. So I went into the class. I was really high and I was late, about 10 minutes late. Um, the lecturer sort of looked up at me with disgust and I was just like, whatever, man, I'm just here to get my GCSE, get the hell out. And there were no tables free apart from one where there was this little guy sitting at this table um, with his baseball cap pulled right down over his eyes. Um, and he was the only table that was free. And I was like, oh, I've got to go and sit with this geek. All right, then. So I went and sat down next to him and um, I must have pulled out um, one of my books that I had on me at the time. And it was um, a comic book. And Rich is like, wait, you read comics? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, my God, we've got to be friends. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like, because I'm still high at this point. <laughs> so I was just like, your energy is way too intense for me, dude. But um, we ended up hitting it off and becoming friends. And um, we've known each other really since 1995. Um, and even as early as then, we kind of talked about wanting to do something together where we where we spoke about, you know, our, our love for, for comics, for movies, for popular culture. 
Um, but we had no idea how to do it back then. You know, podcasting wasn't even a thing back then. Um, you know, blogging wasn't even a thing back then. This is this is back in the days of dial-up internet, and you know, where, where mm-hmm. it took half an hour to actually connect, and then if somebody called your landline, your internet connection would drop out. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> and your, your modem would make that noise when it was trying to connect you so you know we're talking a long time ago here people um and you, you know as i said we always kind of knew we wanted to do something but we just didn't know kind of how to do it um and you know the years went by we we went through so many things together and to the point where you know richard is is no longer even my friend he yeah, i consider him my brother now and, and he the same with me um and we always kind of held on to this idea that we were going to do something and then in 2016 we finally kind of cottoned on to the oh so there's this thing called podcasting oh what's what's that and then you know we kind of i started to listen to a few podcasts and i said to him look dude we can do this like this is something we could do man like it it doesn't require a lot of effort let's do it um so we tentatively kind of put out a, a test episode um and it did really well and we freaked the hell out and did nothing again for a year (laughs) so so we were like what like now there's pressure people expect things from us man like what what is this what are we doing um so eventually in 2017 we were like no come on let's make a proper go of this now let's give this a go um and so we did we decided to uh, set up wulong talks and um as we were talking about cowboy bebop earlier the name Wulong Talks, um, for those of you who are Cowboy Bebop fans, you'll know that the currency they use in Cowboy Bebop is Wulongs. Um, and because we were both massive Cowboy Bebop fans, we wanted to kind of try and find a way to, to work that into the title of the podcast. And, and thus, sort of Wulong Talks was born. Um, and it's been an incredible journey since 2017. We've, we've had the opportunity to interview some amazing people. Um, we've met, you know, uh, uh, cosplayers, we've met writers, um, we've met filmmakers, and, and these are all, you know, people who are working independently as well, which was one of the, the kind of big things we really wanted to do, was we wanted to meet people who were, you know, were, were forging their own path in, in the world and were trying to do something for themselves, um, rather than somebody affiliated with a big brand or a big label. Um, because you know that that kind of attention is nice, but it's it's also I think awesome to kind of look out for the little guy a little bit. And, you know, for mm, definitely, just coming up. So we've had the opportunity to do that. It's been incredible. It's been an amazing ride. It, it's so much fun. We've met some amazing people just like you, and um, you know we're we're just super happy to be a part of of the podcast gang, really. So um, yeah, that, that's how we got here. It's amazing, really, kind of that you guys have you know, not only known each other for such a long time that you've obviously both had the same kind of likes and dreams and, you know, and I and I know that following you guys on Instagram that you go to all these different conventions and, you know, exhibitions and, and stuff like that. And I'm always really fascinated to sort of all the, you know, like you say, the cosplayers that you guys meet. And I find that so fascinating. Mm. You know, it's something that I would love to have the confidence to be able to do, but I don't I don't quite have it um, because it took me long enough to actually get the confidence to do this, you know, to to podcast. So I find it really fascinating Mm. that because obviously to podcast with someone, you've got to have good chemistry with them. And I think it's quite apparent that you and Rich know each other so well. I mean, like like you said, you know, you consider yourself brothers Mm. that, you you know, you're that close now. 
Um, and I think that definitely comes across in in your podcast is that, you know, you are you're more than than friends. You know, you are like kindred spirits, mm. really, in a, in a way. And I know that you don't always get on. You don't always agree with each other. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's which part are, of being a family, we, isn't it? <laughs> Well, exactly. And I, I always quite like that because a lot of the podcasts I listen to are partnerships. So whether that's like husband and wife or or good friends or whatever. And I, I really like it when sometimes you get a little bit of banter, you know, between between the two hosts, because it's it makes it feel like a real relationship that, you know, you, that those people have. And it's always really nice to kind of hear that because like you say, you can't always agree on everything. Um, but, you know, and from my point of view, um, I always agree with myself. <laughs> so it's, I always find it quite refreshing. Yeah. And I've, I always say this, like having people on because it's nice to actually talk to someone else and to kind of have that rapport with someone, yeah. even if we might not agree. I kind of feel like we will agree on the mummy <laughs> quite a oh, lot. Uh, but, but I don't know, you might you might curveball me and, and turn around and say, actually, I wanted to come on because I hate this movie. <laughs> and then I'll be like, right, OK, well, uh, it's my job to persuade you then. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to be uh, that how it is. Um, just speaking of, of Rich specifically, does he have any thoughts on The Mummy that you maybe have asked him or spoken to him about? Uh, does he like the movie? Uh, if he was here, what do you think he would mm. say? Um, he absolutely loves The Mummy. Uh, and... He is a guy who who just you know Rich is is the type of guy who wears his heart on his sleeve, um, so if he loves something he absolutely adores it and he's all about it and he will not stop telling you that he loves it, um, and when it came to the mummy he was just like oh my god I wish I could have come on I wish I could have come on I wish I could have come on because he just absolutely adores that that mummy movie um, he really does, uh, he just loves you know the the amazing chemistry between the two leads, um, the special effects, the the sense of adventure, the sense of history, you know, everything about the the movie um, and the fact that it works as, as just such a brilliant um, summer blockbuster, um, you know, is, is, is kind of what he, he really loves about the movie. And, and he and I basically feel the same way, you know, it, it's a, a tremendous uh, kind of summer, as I said, summer blockbuster. It, it's almost the perfect summer blockbuster um it's just an unbelievable movie and and it stands up today you know yeah. as as a, a true adventure um it really stands up it, it harkens back to you know kind of the classic sort of um adventure movies that you used to get from hollywood in the sort of late 1940s and the 50s and up to kind of the early 60s um it's got that same spirit about it that that sense of fun and that sense of um you know almost kind of like a devil may care attitude uh that mm. really really makes the the movie just a, an absolute thrill to watch so yeah he would be over 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 excited about talking about the mummy to you today so to the point where i almost feel bad that we're doing this and he's not here um, but not bad enough to call it uh, up, so yeah <laughs> uh no well i i feel kind of bad that he's not here um because he and i do share a an inimitable uh love for jude mm, law as mm, well so yeah. uh yeah, I, I feel like uh, he and I would probably just sort of veer off into to how fantastic Jude Law is, oh, yeah. uh, as well as as well as the Mummy. So let's go into the Mummy because that's why we're here. 
that's why uh, people have downloaded, hopefully downloaded this episode. Um, so I've got a little plot summary. So I'm just going to go through that. Um, obviously, if you've not seen The Mummy, like why have you not seen The Mummy? You should be watching The Mummy. It's amazingly 20 years old this year. So now's a better time than any to, to go out buy a copy of The Mummy, stream The Mummy. I believe it's streaming on Netflix or Now TV in the UK. Um, I'm not sure about the US, but I think I've got two copies of The Mummy on DVD. Um, I've got like a box set copy and I've got a single copy. I don't think I've ever bought it on Blu-ray, which is quite sacrilegious. And I think I might have to rectify that because I'm sure it is available on Blu-ray. But um, I love this movie so much. Right. Plot summary. In ancient Egypt, High Priest Imhotep is in a forbidden relationship with Anuksunamun, Pharaoh Seti's mistress. When Seti finds out his mistress has been touched, Imhotep and Anuksunamun murder him. Anuksunamun chooses to commit suicide rather than be captured, while Imhotep is apprehended by the Pharaoh's bodyguards, cursed with the Homdai, mummified and buried in Hamanaptra. Should he ever be resurrected, he would bring about the end of the world. 3,000 years later, adventurer Rick O'Connell leads Egyptologist Evelyn Carnahan and her brother Jonathan to strange and mysterious Hamanaptra, the city of the dead. While Jonathan is keen on finding the legendary Egyptian treasures, Evelyn wants to search for the Book of the Living, which would clarify historical knowledge about the ancient Egyptians, and Rick is the only person who knows where to find it. As a rival of group of careless American adventurers join them on their travels, they open the tombs, and Imhotep is accidentally freed from his eternal prison. One by one, he takes their organs and lives to become fully powered in order to resurrect his beloved Anuksunamun. He unleashes plagues and rains fire on Egypt, and it's up to Rick, Evie and Jonathan to save the world from the undead threat. Oh my God, just reading that, it just like, oh, it makes me so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, so, cast. Oh my God, the cast in this movie is, is so incredible. So uh, we've got Brendan Fraser, who plays Rick O'Connell. He went on to do the two sequels. He did um, a movie called Bedazzled with Elizabeth Hurley. He kind of had a bit of a strange career kind of post this movie, um, Journey to the Centre of the Earth. And, um, and then he, I think he was most famously on Scrubs on TV. Um, but I think he's kind of been continuing doing movies on and off. Probably his most famous um, movie that he did before this was George of the Jungle, which is so charming and wonderful and he's great in it. Um, and then the absolutely incredible Rachel Weisz, um as Evie Carnahan. I mean, she is probably one of the greatest actresses that Britain has exported in, in recent years. Um her post-mummy career is just so phenomenal. She obviously refused the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor sequel because she read the script and it sounded like complete rubbish and she was right. So she was replaced by Maria Bello for that movie. Um, I mean, she's starred in oh all sorts, About a Boy, Constantine, Constant Gardener, The Fountain, The Deep Blue Sea, Oz the Grey and Powerful, My Cousin Rachel and... Most recently, The Favourite, which is such an amazing movie and she is so great in it. Um, And she's also going to be starring in the Black Widow movie Mm -hmm. with Scarlett Johansson coming out next year. So I'm really looking forward to seeing her in that. Um, She's won uh, an Oscar. She's won a BAFTA. She's won Critics' Choice Awards. She's won Golden Globes. She's won Screen Actors Guild Awards. I mean, Rachel Weisz 
she's so wonderful in this movie and I love her so much, but she has basically been the, the standout for sort of career going forward from this movie. Um, she's amazing. I love her. Um, we've got John Hanna as Jonathan. So up to this point, he was most well known for Four Weddings and a Funeral and the wonderful Sliding Doors, um, which is on my list to do because I think it's great. And he's been mainstay in in tv so he's been in like damages agents of shield and atlantis and then sort of the more minor sort of roles we've got arnold Vosloo, who's imhotep kevin j o'connor as benny jonathan hyde as dr chamberlain and oded fair as ardeth bay who interestingly i found out the character was supposed to have like a full face tattoo and then the director met oded fair and realized he was so good looking that they were like, we are not going to tattoo that man's face because he's he's good looking. You know, let's let's keep that good looking face looking great. Um, so the movie was directed by Stephen Summers, uh, who went on to direct The Mummy Returns. He also did Van Helsing and G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, which I remember being terrible, but I haven't seen it in a while. So I don't know, maybe it improves with age possibly not um, <laughs> oh, oh okay I, sh- I shan't be going out to uh to get that uh I think Van Helsing wasn't too bad if I recall um that was Hugh Jackman mm. I believe and Kate Beckinsale yes, that's right. um and I think I mean I always appreciate a, a quality Hugh Jackman role um so I remember that being okay but Definitely The Mummy is kind of Stephen Summers, the pinnacle of his <laughs> career, I would say. Um, he also wrote the movie uh, along with Lloyd Fonville and Kevin Jarre. Um, and the credit also went to John L. Balderston because he wrote the original 1932 screenplay. Um, and this movie takes quite a lot from that original 1932 movie. And we can talk about that a little bit later. And uh, Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Shea are uncredited uh, on this movie. So a bit of a brief production history. So um, in 1992, James Jackson and Sean Daniel, they basically decided that they wanted to update the original 1932 Mummy movie and they wanted to do it for the 1990s. It all came about because the studio had had quite a lot of financial loss and they were like, well, we want to we want to resurrect, you know, excuse the pun, uh, something from what we currently own. So Universal agreed, but they wanted the budget of uh, 10 million. And they originally they went to Clive Barker. And uh, obviously Barker is famous for his Hellraiser movies. So he's very much a horror director. And his vision for the movie was violent, dark, sexual and filled with mysticism, um, which sounds very interesting and a, a mummy movie that I think I'd quite like to see. Um, but after several meetings, Barker and Universal parted company. And then they went to Joe Dante, who was obviously famous for directing Gremlins. And his idea was Daniel Day-Lewis, who was like some brooding contemporary mummy. Um, and it was focused on reincarnation with this love story element. And some of Joe Dante's ideas, such as the flesh-eating scarabs, they actually did make it to the final project, but they would have basically blown the budget. So uh, it was rejected. And then George A. Romero had a bit of a stab at it. He had this zombie-style horror vision, similar to Night of the Living Dead, um, which included this tragic romance and ambivalence of identity. But Romero's script was considered too dark and violent. I mean, obviously, it's George A. Romero. He's known for 
dark and violent, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had contractual obligations, so he left. Oh my God, so many people were involved in the beginnings of this movie. It's quite incredible. And then you've got Mick Garris and Wes Craven, even. Obviously, Wes Craven, very famous horror director. Uh, he turned it down. It was Stephen Summers who called Jackson Daniel in 97 uh, with his vision uh, of, of a Indiana Jones or Jason and the Argonauts with the mummy as the creature giving the hero a hard time. And Summers had seen the original movie when he was eight and he wanted to recreate the things that he loved, but on a bigger scale. So the, ultimately, the reason why we've got the mummy as we know it is a little movie called Babe Pig in the City, which is the sequel to the movie Babe. So because Babe, Pig in the City, flopped so terribly, um, the loss led the studio to want to revisit the successful franchises. And so Universal basically turned around to Stephen Summers and said, we approve your concept. Here's $80 million. You go for it. So the movie was also a first for Industrial Light and Magic. They did the first fully computer generated character to have full human anatomy. So Imhotep was recreated as a skeleton and then all of his individual muscles were added and sequenced in different poses to ensure realism. And then Arnold Vosloo was motion captured to basically give Imhotep that extra uh, extra layer of, of realism. Um, so the movie that we have is quite an incredible movie just anyway. But just the fact that all of these people were involved and and, and then sort of not involved, all these massive horror directors you know the the likes of george a romero and uh wes craven and even joe dante were all involved and they all kind of either stepped away from the project or decided they didn't want to do it it's it's quite incredible i i do wonder what it would have been like to have uh, a george a romero mummy movie or even a uh, Clive Barker <laughs> mummy movie. I think it would just be incredible. Um, yeah. And it would obviously dial up the yeah. horror uh, because this, this movie is quite scary. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I was going to say, sorry to interject, I was just going to say, I mean, like, I had no idea that it had passed through so many hands and, and it's not just anybody. It's, as you said, these are some of, like, the luminaries of, of genre cinema who <laughs> have all taken a run at, at this script and, and tried to bring it to life. Um, and it's fascinating when you think that, you know, as you said, it, it, it went through the hands of George A. Romero and, you know, knowing his filmography and what he does, like you can imagine kind of what kind of take he would have taken um, on this movie. And it obviously would have been something very different to what we got. Um, and I guess the same could apply to, to Joe Dante as well. I mean, even though Dante um, kind of has history with gremlins and, and things like that, that, um you know, he, he he's used to kind of maybe dealing with the, the fantastical in that way. Even his take would, would be different. And Clive Barker, goodness me. Like, <laughs> if, if, you know, if his previous filmography is anything to go by, good, like, good Lord, who knows what we would have got there. I mean, as you said, it it would have been probably extremely violent, filled with sex, loads of gore. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, just not yeah. something that people would have been queuing up to see on a summer's day, um, you know, in, in, in the 90s. So... Yeah, that is fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting as well because obviously they, like you say, Joe Dante is known for more kind of the fantastical kind of elements, and then the the other guys are kind of you know your Wes Cravens and your George A. Romero's. They're more you know linked to, and obviously Clive Barker linked to horror, and 
And I do often wonder, because obviously all of these people have obviously had some input. You know, Joe Dante definitely had some input in the finished product. The thing that I love the most about this movie, and it's something that I want to talk about in a little bit later, is all of the genres it covers, because it, it's not just one particular genre. It's not just like an action adventure movie. It's, you know, you've got all of these different genres that are kind of all mixed together. And, are, and I do often feel like having all of these people kind of contribute a little bit, I wonder whether that's the reason why it's so good with all of these individual aspects. We do need to talk about, and I don't want to, but we do need to talk about the the reboot slash remake slash Tom oh Cruise God, thing. Yeah, we that <laughs> we, Only because it is linked in a very small way to this movie, okay. but I think it also highlights how brilliant this movie is and how terrible that mm. one is. Mm. Uh, because it just doesn't do anything no. like what this movie does. I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you, and, and, and I want us to get this out of the way now, is there anything that you don't like about The Mummy? Because we know that we both mm. love it, but is there anything that you don't like? Um, I think the only thing that kind of struck me, kind of, you know, re-watching the, the movie recently, is that um, it is a, a, a movie that um, doesn't necessarily... It, it doesn't necessarily accurately capture um, the all the historical le- elements of, of ancient Egypt. Um, and I guess if you were to take this movie as it is today and release it in 2019, um, they might have some problems in terms of uh, the representation within the movie and the fact that there is mm-hmm. um, very little in the way of actual um, Egyptians involved in, in kind of key roles in, in the plot and um as said that the, the you know they're, they're tiny nitpicks about the portrayal of ancient egypt that um in today's you know climate might be perceived as as being a little bit insensitive um but that really was the only thing that i could kind of think of that that stood out to me that i was like eh, well you know it, it's not even necessarily something that i don't like it's just something that i saw as maybe potentially could be a problem with the movie if you're watching it in today's prism um but otherwise mm. you know I, I i really struggled the only thing you, you <laughs> could say is you know maybe some of the visual de- effects have, have dated slightly um but again you know given that you're watching it in the context of you know the 90s when this movie came out um you know the visually it was stunning there, there's some genuinely beautiful cinematography work in this film um and for the most part, they're able to to blend in the the VFX pretty seamlessly into the movie. So, um, you know, you, again, you, you'd be kind of sort of nitpicking at the the movie in a millennial sort of way if if you were to criticize it on that basis. So, yeah, you know, apart from those kind of things, I I really couldn't think of anything that I didn't like about this movie. I just I love it. It is one of those movies, and I don't know if it's because. Maybe I feel because I'm so emotionally attached to this movie. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to cover it. But I kind of feel like when you do have such an attachment to a movie, it's very difficult to look at it objectively mm-hmm. because you might have memories associated with it. You know, good times going to the cinema or whatever. And I kind of feel very much that way. Every time I watch it, it just fills me with such joy that I I very much struggle to kind of 
look at it in a very unbiased opinion because every time I watch it I'm just reminded of how much I love Mm. it (laughs) but I guess I would be in agreement with you in in that I think it does go some ways in teaching you about ancient Egypt Mm. Uh, but there are several inaccuracies such as where the pyramids are located (laughs) for example (laughs) that I, I kind of feel like you know, you you don't watch a movie like this for for a history lesson, no, obviously. Yeah, no, absolutely but not. but you you also it's also important that it is accurate mm. um, to to a degree when you're talking about fictional characters. But when you're talking about uh, real history, you know, such as the ancient Egyptians and what they did and how they contributed to uh, the world that they were living in at the time, um, I, I kind of feel like yeah, they maybe could have made a bit more of an of an effort perhaps with that i'm i mean my main kind of gripes are i guess watching it the character that i most resonate with is evie Mm. and i kind of feel like a lot of the way she's treated in the movie and i know that it's set in the 20s um and and obviously you know you could argue well it was a different time back then and it and it was a different time for women back then and she's I'm going to I want to talk a little bit later about the fact that she's highly educated and you know that 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 wasn't something that women got she's obviously very well off financially um so obviously her she could afford to have uh, the education that she has but the men in the movie do treat her quite abysmally mm, mm. um and I kind of feel like perhaps that is because that's how it would have been in the 20s yeah. um I appreciate realism in movies. She's basically sexually harassed a couple of times and it always kind of always makes creeps me out a little bit um, because I kind of feel like it's not necessary. Like, for example, when she's trying to barter with the guard to set Rick Mm. free, um, you know, he basically implies, oh, well, you know, if you if you give me a good time, then, you know, we can we can agree something. And she like bats him away and. Um, and there's obviously this um, forced kiss mm. uh, just before Rick is sent to be executed. And I think at the time it was something that didn't bother me. Um, but it's it's clearly a little bit problematic. Yeah. Uh, the fact yeah. that he's essentially forcing a, a kiss on, on this, this young woman. Um, but I think for me that that's, there's nothing else really in this movie... Um, that I would feel that I didn't enjoy. And, and I think, like you say, it, it is nitpicking a little bit because I guess I, I forgive the movie for a lot of the inaccuracies and I can forgive Rick for doing what he did, even though it was wrong. He was also just about to be hanged. And so, like he says later, well, I thought it was a good idea at the time because I was just about to be hanged. And um, yeah, it's... it's not, I, you know, I'm not condoning that sort of behaviour uh, at all, but I I kind of feel like if if we are going to be nitpicking about things that you probably I wouldn't want if the movie came out today, it would definitely be this whole because Evie's the only woman in this team. There are no other women. She can't converse with other women. Um, she's surrounded by all these dudes. Um, I'd I'd maybe like them to treat her with a little bit more respect. <laughs> But again, it's uh, it's set in the twenties. It came out in the nineties. Um, it both were completely different times. 
to to now and and like you say what's acceptable or what was acceptable back in the 90s a lot of the times isn't acceptable uh now and we don't want to see now so um but i mean it's really difficult to say things that i don't like about this movie <laughs> because it's um it's so good <laughs> um oh I, I just want to quickly go through because I mentioned earlier about there was a, the original movie came out in 1932 and there are quite a few similarities. So I just thought it would be really interesting to go through those. Um, so in the 1932 original, the mummy is still called Imhotep. However, his alter ego is Ardith Bay. Um, and obviously in this movie, Ardith Bay is a separate character. He's a, a member of the Medjai who uh, essentially protect Hamanak well not they kind of protect Hamanak but their, their their goal is to make sure that he never resurfaces um the Imhotep was buried alive like 1999 Imhotep and he's resurrected by the book of the dead um now Anaxanamun um I've got to see if I can get this pronounced right because her name in the original is Princess Ang Ankex oh no Ank S Enamon Ank S Enamon yeah that is not going to happen. Ank Esenamon. And that's the moon's a lot easier to say. Um, and Imhotep's aim is to resurrect her because he's in love with her. Um, so that love aspect is is obviously still present in the 1999 movie. And there's a character in the 1932 movie called Helen Grosvenor. And she is half Egyptian. Um, and also bears a resemblance to uh, Ank Esenamon. Yay, there we go, got it. Um, and in this movie, Evie mentions that her mother is Egyptian. So obviously, Evie herself is also half Egyptian. Let's start talking about the movie. Now, admittedly, I did want to talk about the movie specifically. And I kind of started to list uh, all of the the different settings. And I thought that maybe we could talk about them individually um and basically talk about the things that we liked uh there's not going to be anything we dislike because as we've already said it's pretty perfect um but it's important to note i think that the movie starts in ancient egypt so even before the credits uh the movie sets up it's it's about seven minutes long and the story is about imhotep and his love for anaxonamun um and that they were having an affair and the priests helped cover it up and the, the pharaoh finding out and all of this. And at this point, we're also introduced to the Magi, the pharaoh's bodyguards. They're obviously still around 3,000 years later. I mean, I guess you could argue that if they knew that there was a chance that Imhotep could be resurrected, then why would they have cursed him in such a way that he could possibly be resurrected but i'm not going to go into that because that basically puts a massive hole in the movie and the movie is perfect and it doesn't need that i love the start of this story because i think this this movie could have quite easily started with the whole battle at hamanatra yeah. and then kind of flashbacked to imhotep's story but i like that the focus is on imhotep specifically as the movie starts um and the fact that we get his whole history the, the love that he has for Anaxu Namun, the, the, uh, the betrayal that, of the pharaoh. You know, she commits suicide um, rather than be captured uh, because she loves Imhotep so much. And Imhotep is captured and he's obviously given the Homdai, which is basically reserved for the worst blasphemers in all of Egypt. And he is sealed basically at the base of Anubis. Um, and... The part where Imhotep is sealed 
it has this beautiful transition of where you've got this sort of beautiful statue of Anubis and then it kind of transforms to 1923 version of Anubis that's at Hamanaptra. And then you, you, then you get into this fight with uh, the French Foreign Legion and the uh, Tuareg warriors. It's obviously a battle, but I think it's done pretty damn perfectly because you get introduced to Rick, you get introduced to Benny, uh, you get introduced to the fact that Rick is now second in command uh, because his colonel retreats. So you get this sense of how brave Rick is and how cowardly Benny is <laughs> because yeah. Benny is quite an interesting character in that he's very much the comic relief mm. um, and he's a complete snivelling worm. Um, but you kind of still care about what happens to him. Um, and then you get this lovely scene where all of the worry, the Tuareg warriors, who were real um, in the 1920s, apparently, the atmosphere changes because they're in Hamanaptra. And then you get that lovely kind of reveal of the face in the sand that you and you know that something's not quite right. Um, I mean, what what do you think about that that opening scene at, at Hamanaptra? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really perfectly pitched battle. Um, it's it was very much kind of um, for for me, it, w- it was very almost um, kind of Indiana Jones in terms of the way it was done, in terms mm-hmm. of the way it was shot, and um, the way it was choreographed. And um, one thing I, I, I wanted to to say as well is rewatching this movie is my goodness that the stunt work on this film is amazing absolutely amazing mm-hmm. i mean i hope that the, the the people who were involved in in that side of the film you know um were, were well remunerated for what they did because my goodness like that that opening battle scene has got some incredible stunts in it where people are flinging themselves off horseback and all sorts of stuff and you're looking at it and you're thinking, oh, God, that poor guy is going to really hurt in the morning because he's absolutely <laughs> been thrown miles off of this speeding horse. Um, you know, and, and the the idea of the Foreign Legion fighting um, these forces and um, the way it's it's kind of staged, it's just, it's just absolutely brilliant, like really, really brilliant. But um, just hopping back really quickly to the, the actual um, opening of the film, uh, what I love about that is that it reminded me so much of some of the um, the films that I used to watch with my mother when I was young. Um, my mum was, well, still is a, a really big um, fan of uh, Christian epic movies. Um, and one of those, uh, our, our favourites, was The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Um, and part of that is, is set around um, ancient Egypt. And, you know, I'm sure most of you who've gone to a, Christian school at some point in your lives have heard the story but um you know the the way in which um the mummy opens up in its recreation of ancient ancient Egypt and and the politics even though the scene is very short it's extremely evocative of of that type of a movie um and mm. so straight away I was kind of sucked in and I was given exactly the same kind of feelings of of just wonder and awe at how this ancient kingdom was built and thrived and, and, fr- and you know, really flourished. Um, and they, they do just such a, a grand job of that. And even though, yeah, as we said, nitpicking technically, they, they put the pyramids in the wrong place. Um, you know, it, it, it was wonderful to, to see that recreated so lovingly on, on the screen. And 
Um, I'm sure uh, Stephen Summers must have taken some influence from um, some of those biblical epics of, of the early days. And, and then it's funny because then the battle at Hamanuptra is, is almost like his kind of nod to, um, you know, the work of uh, David Lean and, um, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and things like that. It, it kind of gives mm. you that sense. Um, so you can definitely see, you know, the different influences that, that Summers had for, throughout this movie. And, and those two kind of scenes are, are just perfect as, as homages to, to that type of storytelling, really. So, yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a terrific start to get the movie off to. And if you're somebody who, you know, has never seen the movie before, if, if you're not drawn in by the first, you know, sort of five to seven minutes of the movie, then I don't know what else to say to you, you know, because it's just it's just wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the the scenes at ancient Egypt as well. They're so they're like they're so lavish. Yes. Yeah. You know, it do, it does remind you of of those old epic movies that were that obviously cost so much money to yeah. make. You know, back in the day, and and obviously this was not a cheap movie. Um, they obviously did lavish a lot on the special effects, and um, and it, it's very apparent that a lot of love and care went into this movie. And I think that's one of the things that I love so much about it. Like you say, is is it pays tribute to so many kind of classic movies. Mm. Um, but it also kind of has its own style. I just feel like so many movies nowadays are made because the studio obviously wants to make yeah. money, which is yeah, fair, of course, you know. But... Exactly. But it's kind of, well, we want it to make money regardless of the quality. And I think well, that's one of the reasons why the New Mummy movie was failed so terribly was they didn't care what was in it. They didn't care about a coherent story mm. or a character that we cared about or or anything like that. They just wanted to make as much money as possible. And what better way than to use the name of a movie that specifically had so much love and care and attention that went into the production mm. which which i think this movie does have i think that yeah you could look at some scenes now and think oh it looks a bit dodgy but you're always going to do that with slightly older movies anyway as, as technology progresses but um but yeah I, I completely see what you're what you're going to especially things like the lawrence of arabia connection and everything like that because it does feel very much like they are kind of picking maybe from older movies mm. and and pay an homage to them um and obviously you mentioned before indiana jones which is i think one of those movies that this movie gets compared to most often yeah. because of the action adventure style it feels very reminiscent of an indiana jones movie but i kind of feel and i know this is probably gonna be sacrilegious but i'm gonna say it anyway i would sit and watch this movie more than i would sit and watch an indiana jones mm. movie but that's just because of just the love that I have mm. for this. Um, so the plot then moves forward three years. So we're now in 1926. And Evelyn Carnahan is a librarian at the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo. So we're introduced to Rick in the previous scene. So we know all about Rick. But at this point, we don't know who this woman is. And then we have this amazing one-take destruction of the library. And it tells us everything we need to know about Evie, that she is very knowledgeable because she knows about all of these books. She knows she even mentions that she can read and write ancient Egyptian. So 
She's incredibly intelligent, incredibly astute, but she's a little bit clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> and and that just automatically kind of endears, I think, the audience to her, that she's not your kind of stereotypical uh, femme fatale or, you know, this Mary Sue who who knows everything about everything. I find her very human and very relatable sort of throughout this movie. Um, and we find out that her parents were patrons of the museum, that her father was an Egyptologist. We find out that her mother was Egyptian. And obviously that because of that, she can read and write ancient Egyptian. Um, all skills of which are, are going to be incredibly important later. And for me, I kind of feel like Evie is the linchpin that holds this entire movie together. I feel like without Evie, this movie would not be anywhere near as good. And I think that Rachel Weiss, as always, I mean, she's incredible, but I think in this movie, she she just brings such a warmth to Evie um, and naivety to her because she's so young and obviously she doesn't really know much about the world. Um, she's going to obviously figure all this out um, at some point. And then we're obviously introduced to her brother, Jonathan, who's milking the family fortune on booze. Um, he's very irresponsible. He's immature. He's a goofy idiot. And But interestingly, he's found this puzzle box, mm, uh, which contains a map to Hamanaptra. And he got it from a dig in Thebes, uh, which is a lie. Because we also find out that he's a frequent liar. He lies to everyone. He lies to his sister. He basically says... I lie to you more more than anything because you're more gullible than anyone else. But interestingly, the museum curator is a guy called Terence Bay. Um, and they they show the map to him and he accidentally catches it on fire. And it's interesting because re-watching the movie multiple times, you can clearly see that he is trying to catch this map mm, on fire. Mm. Uh, you know, when he's holding it to the, to the naked flame. But Evie is undeterred because she wants to find Hamanaptra because it's this legendary city. It uh, contains all this legendary treasure and it contains uh, the Book of the Living. They find out that Jonathan did not get it in a dig in Thebes. He stole it from a man who's in prison. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically, we're going to go to prison. Um, and we are going to meet Rick O'Connell again. He has been to Hamanaptra. He insults Evie. He punches Jonathan. But he says, if you get me out, I will take you to the City of the Dead. So that's when Evie uses her skills to barter with the warden. And she's actually quite smart because she refuses his advances because obviously you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to go there. Um, but then she manages to kind of persuade the warden that rick knows the where the city of hamanaptra is and if he sets him free then he could also reap the benefits of all this treasure and then there's a very funny scene where she successfully manages to uh negotiate a percentage with the warden but the warden is so stupid <laughs> he actually ends up uh bartering lower so yeah i mentioned that i i kind of feel like the the warden being very inappropriate with Evie is probably one of the lowest points um, and the kiss. But other than that, I think it's a pretty perfect scene to kind of set up all of these characters 
now they're going to go on together as a threesome with the warden kind of tagging tagging along was there anything about sort of this scene that particularly stood out to you or um or the introduction of evie specifically that you enjoyed um yeah definitely the introduction to evie um a fun bit of trivia as well the uh prison warden is played by a, a guy called Omid Jalili who's um, mm-hmm. a British Iranian stand-up comedian um, by he's very funny he's very funny you've got to see some of yeah. his stuff he, he's brilliant um, and he brings that to this movie totally he's just he, <laughs> you know the the way he plays the, the comedy in that scene is just note perfect um, and again because you know we we say that this movie is one that um, is clearly very influenced by, um, you know, sort of the classic Hollywood adventure movies that, that you got um, in the 40s, 50s and, and 60s. Um, you know, that opening scene where we're first introduced to Evie and she just absolutely wrecks the library um, is, is just played note perfect because it tells you so much about her character immediately. Um, you know, as you said, she's obviously incredibly intelligent, um, you know, very knowledgeable and and learned um but obviously has a very clumsy side to her as well which um as you said you know it it endears you to her immediately um when you meet her because you know we always have got a soft spot for somebody who's you know nice but a little bit awkward um and that scene is is just as said just played perfectly the with the bookshelves going down like dominoes it was it was really funny um Mm. and you know the the scene we're uh, Evie first meets Rick. Um, that was a really interesting scene. Um, I, again, I'm kind of with you as well on, um, yeah, the whole forced kiss and all of that and the way they, they kind of, uh, Rick and the prison warden are, are kind of dealing with Evie. Watching it today is a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit like, yeah, okay, that's a bit sketchy. Maybe don't want to, you know, do that in, in this era. But, um, but I guess it, it kind of was their way of showing that, you know, he's this this type of roguish um, chancer uh, who was often the, the kind of mm-hmm. hero of, of these types of movies, you know, back in the day. And it wasn't unusual for, you know, for Errol Flynn to just decide he was kissing um, the lead and that was that. And, you know, nobody was going to stop him from doing it. Um, and I guess, you know, it, I, I suppose I've kind of justified this in my head, but I guess in, you know, in my head when I saw that scene, it was like, well, you know, he's, he's that type of guy. And, you know, you, you kind of explain it away mm. in that way. Um, thankfully, it's it's not something that um, the movie lingers on for too long and, and kind of moves on swiftly on from. So um, that slight awkwardness, uh, uh, that kind of awkward feeling you get while watching that doesn't last that long. Um, but it's a great setup, I think. It's a great way of kind of introducing um, Rick and Evie to each other. And it kind of, and again, this is going to sound kind of weird because of what I just said about the kiss and so on, but um, it does kind of begin to show us the chemistry, the obvious chemistry that um, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz have um, and how well they're able to kind of construct the 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 seeds of of this relationship blossoming between the two of them um within that scene so it it is a really really cool scene and a a really deep scene even though you don't kind of get that impression straight away but you know because i'm sure when i first watched the movie i I perhaps didn't even pick up on on some of 
you know the the subtle ways they they were kind of manipulating their characters and and um presenting their characters and and presenting the the building of of this relationship between the two of them but um yeah watching it now it, it it's clear as day and it and it really shows you why you know these two were just absolutely perfect choices for this script and and, and why they were so great in this movie mm. yeah i think that i mean i i want to talk a little bit about um the the specific characters and and their and their specific chemistry um a little bit uh later but mm. i i completely agree with you that i i, I feel like the casting for this movie, although obviously you mentioned uh, earlier about nowadays, I think, like, for example, um, Evie mentions that she's half Egyptian. Mm. Um, and I feel like if they were casting it nowadays, they would find an actress who was half Egyptian. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Uh, or who had Egyptian yeah, ancestry. Yeah, of, of uh, Egyptian descent, they probably would have looked at yeah, find. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And obviously Rachel Weisz uh, is not, of egyptian descent um and I, I but i kind of feel like for this movie it doesn't matter mm. because rachel vice um and brenda fraser is so perfectly cast that i i kind of feel like there's no one else in the world who could play those characters and poor maria bello who who came on for tomb of the dragon emperor i mean i, I kind of feel like you know she was pretty much set up for failure oh, totally. Um, because yeah, you totally. you can't take on this iconic role, you can't do it without Rachel Weisz. No. She's she's synonymous, I think, with this role. But she's also because she, she's such a talented actress, she can go on and do pretty much any role that she wants and make it her own. So that's just a testament to her skill, I think, as an actress. But for me, she will always be Evie, mm. um, and her portrayal and her what she brings to this movie is one of the reasons why well obviously because brendan fraser is completely gorgeous and i would i would watch brendan fraser do anything <laughs> in this movie because he's he's so good looking <laughs> in this movie but he's also you know like you said he's a scoundrel you know he's a rogue you know he's he's kind of a little bit like and i've mentioned this before this kind of atypical hollywood bad boy role but it's like a bad boy with a heart of gold kind of thing um and that's kind of the whole bad boy thing is something that speaking for myself you know i've always had this kind of attraction and fascination to to bad boys sort of throughout my entire life and it's to be honest, it's never done me any good. <laughs> I've got to be honest. But, you know, you, you, you're always attracted to the guy who's a, a little bit naughty. But then what you want is the, the bad boy to have a heart of gold and, you know, ultimately to treat you right. And I feel like I've kind of been conditioned <laughs> a little bit by characters like Rick O'Connell to to believe that, you know, that's real, I guess, because he's a bit of a scoundrel, Um and he's not particularly nice to her at the start. He's actually very rude to her. But you can kind of see this mutual attraction and respect grow throughout the movie. So you never kind of feel like, oh, they hate each other. Oh, no, now they love each other. It's it's done in such a subtle way that you genuinely believe that he's falling for her and that she's falling for him sort of throughout as the movie progresses. It's so subtle, but it's so genius. 
because I feel like a lot of movies have these romantic relationships just kind of plonked in because they're like, well, we want to be able to sell the movie and the movie will only sell if it's got a romantic relationship in. Where I've I always felt with this movie that the romantic relationship is in there, but that's not the focus is never on Rick and Evie mm. because the main romantic relationship is Imhotep and Anaxon Amun yeah. and their love. And the whole Rick and Evie thing is is kind of a little bit secondary. It's nice and it's welcomed and I, I absolutely adore it. But it's it's a love story, but it's not a it's not their love story. Mm. They're just characters that are trying to stop the love story from from actually occurring um but i feel like we've gone off a little bit on a tangent but it's still kind of relevant i think (laughs) to 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 the movie um and i i guess i'm kind of wondering like maybe because we've got quite a lot of scenes in this movie um and quite a lot of introductions um to certain characters so i kind of feel like we can't really skip though you know because i think it's all quite relevant mm. but well i guess we'll just have to see how it goes if it's good if it ends up another three and a quarter hour one i think i don't think i'll last that long <laughs> i was gonna say my, but... my throat is not gonna hold up for three and a quarter hours. Okay. <laughs> yeah yeah speed speed is a legendary episode yeah. for the fact it's definitely not in any way speedy <laughs> um and i i haven't managed to beat that record yet so um so i am quite mindful of that um but Rick is freed from prison and Evie is very pleased about that. Not because she cares about him specifically, but she cares about the fact that with him, she gets to go to Hamanaptra. Um, and then we we have this wonderful scene where they're about to board the riverboat and Evie is basically not very happy. She's talking to her brother, Jonathan, and basically saying, oh, well, you know, he's a scoundrel and I don't want anything to do with him. And... Rick kind of turns up behind her and he's clean shaven, he's tidy, he's well dressed, he's handsome and he's just perfection Um, because this is the classic 20s adventurer look. Um, Brendan Fraser just just pulls it off so nicely. (laughs) Um, So from from a man's perspective, obviously Rick O'Connell, would he be someone that you would like specifically look up to? Um, yeah, I guess in a way you would. He he kind of, um, as you, you mentioned previously, you know, the um, Hollywood is very good at giving us these bad boys with a heart of gold. And I think, um, you know, there, there are loads of examples of, of, of them in, um, in American movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there was always something quite aspirational about that um, because it, it kind of, you know, everybody... At, at, certainly from a, a male perspective everybody wanted to be the guy who played by, by their own rules you know i i don't do rules i i, I you know i'm a rebel i, I kind of do my own thing um but at the same time is the guy who would also you know do the heroic thing and the right thing when when the occasion called for it um and rick o'connell was very much in in that tradition in terms of uh you know the way that the character is written and the way he's portrayed by brendan fraser um and as you said the the man just looks damn good in like a flannel shirt and pants you know it, it just he carries that look off incredibly um and so yeah i suppose there there, there is a a part of you as as a guy that is kind of like man like 
I want to do that. I, I want to. <laughs> I, I want to go to ancient <laughs> Egypt. I, I want to go to the temples and you know and fight mummies and you know and, and ride horses and fire shotguns and and you know all of that kind of stuff. I, I want to do that. Um, and yeah, as, as said, he he just is that that perfect sort of um, that perfect Hollywood leading man um as certainly for mm-hmm. a, an adventure movie or an action movie in the sense that you know he 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 has the charm he has the wit um he kind of he's a rule breaker but you know but he also cares uh, enough to to do the right thing at the right time um he always seems to have you know one extra trick up his sleeve or or you know one last kind of quip that he can spit out at just the right time and yeah it, it's it's very very aspirational when you think about it you know you really do want to kind of be rick o'connell in this movie um and that's testament to to brendan fraser and and the work that he did with that character he's so good in this movie it's and i i think i mentioned um before i'm trying to remember which episode it was Oh, Pirates, at specifically Pirates of the Caribbean. I talked about the fact that sometimes with Pirates of the Caribbean, it felt like it was lightning in a bottle. Yes. That all of these elements just kind of came together to make this movie that was so brilliant and so perfect and worked so well, despite the fact that it was based on a, a theme park ride. And I feel very much the same about The Mummy, that you've got all of these individual elements, all of these kind of people that have picked at this this piece of the pie and like managed to create something with this cast and crew and that feels very much the same like lightning in a bottle like you could never recreate this movie ever again because obviously they tried and they failed miserably i genuinely feel like sometimes you do have movies like this and i know that not all critics agree um, because I know that specifically the critics kind of thought it was a bit kind of style over substance. Mm. Um, and I think you could argue, like like you mentioned, it doesn't really go into the history of ancient Egypt all that much. But the style of the movie is, is so damn good and it's such good mm. fun that you kind of forgive it for not having a great deal of substance because what it does, it does so incredibly well. Going back to the riverboat, once we're on the riverboat, we actually meet up with another team so we've got a team of americans Mm. who are being led by rick's old war buddy benny and we know that benny is conniving and sniveling and he's basically all about the money he is a coward and we we find out a lot about benny just basically from the fact that he's he's the comedy sidekick essentially but the americans aren't dumb so they've basically said well you take us to Hamanaptra because you know where it is, but we'll only give you half the money and we'll, you'll get the other half when you kind of safely bring us back. Um, and Rick, although he's kind of happy to take Evie and Jonathan there, he does believe in this curse, that Hamanaptra is cursed and that he experienced things there. He really doesn't want to go back, but... Is essentially encouraged, I think, um, because Evie saved his life and he kind of feels like he owes her a debt. So he's not particularly happy to return, but he is willing to do so for her. And then we get uh, a wonderful scene uh, with the boat being attacked, which I always kind of feel like 
during the the attack on the boat uh evie is very specifically focused on retrieving the key and the map and because she is very kind of focused on well this this is what i need and rick is very kind of steadfast and very calm and he's like you don't need it because the map's all up here kind of pointing to his brain i just pointed to my own brain by the way <laughs> because <laughs> you know to forget forgetting that podcasting is uh, an audio thing and not a visual thing i did just point to my own you brain know, I'm, I'm laughing because i kind of went to do exactly the same thing and then stopped myself and went, why, why are you doing that <laughs> like yeah. nobody can see you you idiot <laughs> I, I think it's because it's all up here and it's like you automatically mm, instinctively mm. go and point to your own head <laughs> bizarrely um and um yeah so the boat is it ends up being sank and evie is basically just in a nightdress and she, they end up having to swim to shore and you basically i think it's quite an iconic line benny is on the one side of the river and rick evie and jonathan are on the other side and Benny shouts over, "Hey O'Connell, looks to me like I got all the horses." <laughs> and then he, and then Rick replies, "Hey Benny, looks to me like you're on the wrong side of the river." <laughs> and it's just like the look on Benny's face is just like, "Ah, oh. yeah." It's because I assume they're talking about the mm. Nile, um, which is obviously incredibly wide, incredibly deep. Um, it's not something that you specifically want to cross um, with a load of people and a load of horses and, and whatnot. So they've lost all of their things. They've lost all their possessions. Rick's managed to bring his weapons with him because he managed to chuck them overboard. So at least we've got those. And um, and so they have to journey through the desert now to get to Hamanaptra, but they need clothes and camels. We get another little kind of iffy scene where Jonathan is buying camels and um, Rick makes comment about, oh, we we could have got them cheaper if they if you'd given them your sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's another kind of little bit problematic thing yeah, about selling your sister to the owner of the camels. Mm. Um, but yeah, so they they obviously need to buy clothes and whatnot for their journey. Um, and Rachel Voice is looking resplendent in this kind of beautiful gown with this headdress. And um, I mean, she just looks beautiful anyway in this movie. But she's just like, and I think Rick is like, wow. And everyone in the whole world is all like, wow, <laughs> because she's she's so gorgeous. Um, but it's essentially now a race to Hamanatra. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny, though, because they kind of meet up at the same time together, the two teams. So you've obviously got Rick and Evie and Jonathan, and then you've got the Benny and the Americans. And they all kind of meet up, and they're obviously waiting for this um, this vision of, of Hamanaptra to appear, which honestly still kind of doesn't make sense to me that you have to wait for the sun to be in a certain angle in order to see where Hamanaptra is. And I kind of feel like... That's maybe a little bit of the mysticism coming through that it's maybe it's like a mirage or something. Mm. Um, but again, I forgive this movie for a lot. So I, I forgive the fact that you have to wait for this mirage to show in the desert before you can find Hamanaptra. Um, 
because then it's basically just a, a race which Evie wins, which is wonderful because she's on a camel and <laughs> and she loses control of her camel, which is uh, which is such a wonderful thing. And, and Rachel Vice really sells the fact that she loses control of her camel and just kind of goes for it. And look, the look on her face is is pretty priceless. Mm. And then we arrive in Hamanaptra, um, which is basically like Evie's playground. She knows pretty much everything that there is to know about this place and where things are supposed to be and uh, the history of of the area and and because obviously the americans have got uh, a guy on their side and i can't remember the character's name off the top of my head oh it might be uh chamberlain yes, i think is, is his yeah, name yeah. um and he's a bit of like a stuffy professor mm. kind of type and he even kind of mentions specifically, you know, oh, something like they're led by a woman. You know, what does a woman mm. know? And then it cuts to Evie and she's just basically listing off all of this knowledge about the pharaohs and Hamanaptra and and the Book of the Living and where things are supposed to be. And And it's just this movie does such a great job of really highlighting Evie. I actually read uh, an old script, sort of one of the first iterations of this script. And the first iterations of this script that I read, there was a lot more downputting of of Evie generally, basically saying that women, all women are rubbish and don't trust a woman. And honestly, like so many lines of, well, women don't know anything. And and I like that they left this line in purely to kind of highlight just how little the Americans know and how much they underestimate Evie, which actually kind of just propels Evie into an even better character in the sense that because a lot of the time specifically women are told that you know they don't know anything and I always find it quite gratifying to prove people wrong that I do actually know some stuff I don't claim to know a lot about a lot but some there is some stuff that I do know and if someone tells me that I can't do something then I'm automatically going to prove that I can so I kind of feel like Evie, Evie is never told that, oh, well, you know nothing. But she just, because she's just so knowledgeable, she just kind of wows us anyway. She doesn't have to be told that she knows nothing because she's probably been told her whole life by, you know, stuffy English professors and Egyptologists and whatnot that she isn't as good. She even mentions the Benbridge scholars have rejected her again because... You know, they don't feel like she's good enough. And the Benbridge scholars are obviously a bunch of stuffy arseholes, <laughs> aren't they? Because she clearly does. Um, and she she wows us with all of this information in, in the tombs. They end up sort of crossing, because they want to dig in a certain place and the Americans want to dig there as well. So you end up with this little standoff and Evie's the one who actually kind of calms it down and says, look, there are other places to dig. We'll leave the Americans here. And to be honest, it's the best thing that they could have done because that is obviously where all of the organs, the organ jars are. Um, It's the one that's booby trapped. So um, a load of Egyptian, I, I assume, well, 
they're like workers, aren't they? They're a bit like worker bees, but I, I assume they're slaves. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't 100% who... sure either with, with that scene. I mean, I, I'm assuming that they are, um, you know, labourers, I guess, um, you know, the uh, work hands. Um, I don't know if they were necessarily slaves, but certainly the, it, it, it's not like they would have been getting a pension and health care and all of that in the, <laughs> with the job. So, you know, I imagine they, they worked for a bowl of food a day or something like that. And and that's what it was. But yeah, yeah, I was unsure about that as well. Yeah. Yeah, they were kind of like, well, we'll get these guys to do the the stuff that we don't want to do. Um, and they end up getting a load of ancient acid mm. in their faces um this movie it, it doesn't kind of step away from the no, gore no it doesn't um it is actually quite scary yeah. in places um i know my mum specifically when she found out i was doing this movie on the podcast my mum doesn't listen um i i've downloaded the episodes for her but to be fair they're not movies that she really is interested mm. in but she's just happy that I'm happy. So she downloads them. But I can safely say my mum's not going to be listening to oh, this okay. one. Because my my mum does not like this movie at all. Right. She she finds it so scary. Mm. And I'm just like, mum, it's not that scary. She's like, it is. She She's genuinely quite frightened of this movie. She doesn't like the scarabs. She doesn't like the the horror elements i think she likes everything else but she doesn't like the the mummy itself and she doesn't like the mm. horror but in parts it is genuinely quite scary mm. um because the effects are still so good you know when the their faces are basically melting and you're like oh my god you know what did i come to see <laughs> it's just like it's it genuinely kind of ramps up this this fear of this of this curse and it also kind of makes me laugh that every single time someone says something about the curse you get like this kind of wind that rushes through the tombs or the camp and even rick kind of calls it out a bit later and says something like you know that happens a lot around here you know because it's just like i love that the movie kind of makes fun of itself mm. a little bit it's it's very self-aware yeah. um and i and i kind of like that a lot and and as it turns out, the the fact the Americans have essentially um, taken all of the uh, the valuables, essentially the the organs, and they actually then find the book of the dead. I always get quite confused yeah. because they they actually confuse the books in the movies, don't they, they? Do. because it's the book of the dead that brings him to life and the book of the living that yeah. kills him. So yeah, so yeah, the book of the dead. And they actually find the book. Um, which is interesting because you have a, se a sequence of events. So they've found the book. They've, these are the Americans, they've got all of the canopic jars, um, which are, they look like they're made of ivory or, or something that will uh, get them quite a lot of money if they were sold. So they're obviously only interested really in the treasure side. And on the other hand, we have uh, Rick, Evie and Jonathan, who um, basically end up finding Imhotep um, completely by accident because they are digging at the base of Anubis and they're digging upwards, which, okay, is a bit weird, but fair enough. Dig upwards if you want. Something's going to fall down, but okay, I forgive you. <laughs> um, and they find a tomb 
um, and they have the key necessary to open it and they find something that is well they call it juicy um it's obviously not really decomposed properly um it doesn't look like it's three thousand years old you would expect it to be dust dust. yeah Yeah. um it's obviously the the mummification has preserved um the creature word obviously goes around this camp that they've found a gooey mummy and the other guys have obviously found this book um and although evie she ends up stealing the book from chamberlain who's fast asleep and she starts reading from it and he basically wakes up and is like no you must not read from the book um but up until this point he's obviously saying oh she shouldn't read but he has obviously been trying to get the book open himself so why was he trying to get the book open if he wasn't going to read from yeah. it and then if he knew about the curse then why why does he have the book in the first place and why do they all have the canopic jars mm. because i kind of feel like it's it's a sequence of events they know that they found a mummy they know about a curse they know that imhotep is buried there so i'm a little bit like well i kind of feel like you know what's going to happen um but and I feel like now I'm finding faults with this movie, but I'm not because I still I still enjoy it. Oh, yeah, like I still think yeah. it's I still think it's really mm. good fun. But some of the things that characters do don't always make sense. No, yeah, there are some plot holes there that you've um, you've <laughs> uh, actually stumbled across. Um, yeah, I mean certainly the 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 whole scenario with reading from the Book of the Dead, as as you explained, you know what clearly that was going to be necessary at a certain point. So, you know, why were you then reacting like she shouldn't be reading from the book if that was something you were going to do anyway? And it, it, yeah, just little kind of things like that in, in that particular part of the film, you're kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Well, that yeah, that, that doesn't quite make sense, but okay, you know, it's all right. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still enjoying mm-hmm. it. But, you know, you, you're quite right. It, it's, it's, um, when you fit, sit down and actually think about it, you're like, huh, yeah, that, that doesn't add up, does it? <laughs> um, I actually forgot to mention, just, just before she reads from the book, the, it, uh, the Magi actually attacked the camp. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Again, it it's kind of one of those weird plot things because you would kind of think if the Magi were so adamant that they did not want Imhotep to be arisen, um, that they would make sure that the people who were there would leave straight yeah, away. Yeah. But they don't. They kind of say, oh, we'll give yeah, you a day. It's all right. Have a day. Have a look around. <laughs> put your feet up. Set up your yeah. tents. Um, you know, if you want to go and have a look at the tombs, I suppose you can do. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> just know we'll, in about 24 hours, we'll come and get you. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's, it, it is weird. But again, I forgive it. Mm. And I, I kind of feel like it genuinely doesn't bother me all of these kind of weird plot things because you know it's like well the plot says that we need to be in Hamanaptra and the plot says that she needs to read from the book and the plot says that we need the Magi to turn up but we don't want them to actually do anything um we just want them to be a bit menacing um and I kind of feel like although you've got these plot holes it kind it doesn't affect your enjoyment at all 
Um, because sometimes I think that plot holes can really detract from the movie and you can kind of spend a lot of your time going, but but why did they do that? Like, it doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, sure. But with, with this, it's it's so... It's still so interesting and, and you're, you're kind of quite um, attached at this point to these characters and, and their journey that it, you kind of want the Magi to give them a day because it's like, well, if the Magi don't give them a day, then how are they going to, you know, free Imhotep? Mm. You know, how is he going to start raining de- destruction on the mm. world if the Magi don't give them a day? Um, so the movie kind of really ramps up, I feel, once Imhotep actually is released because you kind of go from this action adventure movie into pretty much a full-blown horror movie Mm. um especially when he's not fully regenerated because he wants the organs so he's going to go to all of these people who have the organs to have these canopic jars and he's going to take the organs i mean and and the way that he does it is quite graphic and a lot of it we don't see mm. um a lot of it is done in shadow which is actually a really good effect yeah yeah definitely because it it, it shows you just how terrifying the mummy yeah. is without actually you having to see it so in a lot of ways the psychological horror of it actually makes it a bit more scary mm. in the tombs um obviously when we when the mummy actually is met for the first time and we have um Evie specifically meeting him there's obviously this connection that Imhotep has with Evie because he obviously needs essentially a human sacrifice mm. um because he he still loves Anaxuna Moon so much after 3000 years that he wants her back and the only way to get her back is is to to find a human sacrifice and this is also kind of where the Indiana Jones aspect comes in because in the tombs you have quite a lot of hidden doors so characters end up in places where you wouldn't expect a character to end up um but you also get some really great comedy um because Rick eventually finds Evie and shoots Imhotep and then they basically escape and and then the Magi come back and they're like oh you have unleashed the creature blah 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 and Rick's like I got him you know I killed him and he's he's quite kind of cocksure in a way um but that is kind of the the attitude that you i think he kind of would have because he's like well i shot him like it's not a problem like he's gone um but obviously doesn't realize what imhotep is um and, and what and what it all means basically so Obviously, I feel like I'm talking quite a lot and that you're not really getting a word in edgeways and I'm really sorry. But I, yeah, I'm, I I love this movie so much. I just want to talk about it. Imhotep has been released and with all of those scenes sort of after, so Evelyn's just read from the Book of the Dead and you get like the glorious kind of scene where she's reading the Egyptian and it's kind of the cameras zooming in on this mummified body and it all of a sudden just kind of roars this massive roar mm. like and and all of the scenes kind of following like is there anything that you specifically wanted to input on on those scenes that i obviously haven't rambled on about for the last <laughs> 20 minutes please feel free well i mean you you pretty much covered like the the bases really um you know it, it really is a 
it really is wonderful the way that they this movie manages to seamlessly kind of transition as you said from action and adventure into horror and i can totally understand why uh mama verbal diorama is is not <laughs> a fan of, <laughs> of, of the horror elements here because you know one of the things that that um you know the director does very well in in this film is he really kind of knows how to play with tension and um he uses the visual effects in in the right way in a sense that they're um you know even whilst um there are these fantastical scenes like like the scene you just mentioned with Imhotep being reborn and um being revitalized and and you know going to when he attacks the Americans and starts taking you know their body parts and things like that I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit sorry um that's when, fine you know taking the body parts and, and things like that and even though it's you know we we're not see we're, we're not shown everything they cut away from certain scenes and as you said they use cast shadow instead which is a really really clever thing um to do and something that um you know Hollywood used to do uh, again uh quite often but but kind of almost lost the art of, of doing that of you know being seen yet unseen with with certain things um and that particular scene with um Evie reading from the book and Imhotep really uh, reincarnating and, and, and coming to life again is just it's all classic classic horror stuff um you mm -hmm. know you can see all of again all of the influences that um you know Stephen Summers kind of brought to it visually um from things like Nosferatu and and kind of um you know some of the the Frankenstein movies and um with, with sort of Boris Karloff those, those kind of classic movies and um you know the way that he kind of plays with the effects in in those scenes is is really really phenomenal and it just creates this tension and this dread and you kind of got a bit of a knot in your stomach when that scene is is, is coming when um you know he starts to come to life again and then he lets out that shriek and you're just like oh and you, you jump about sort of 10 feet out of your seat um it, it's wonderful it's all really you know brilliant examples of, of how um this movie just as you said just kind of classically and 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 brilliantly and seamlessly just kind of switches between genres um in a way that in other movies can be quite jarring sometimes um you know mm -hmm. here it's it's done perfectly and it, and it all seems to just make sense uh when you watch it so yeah that that's a really really uh crucial part of of the movie from a plot point of view and from you know just an audience experience point of view for me that's really where the movie then becomes this intense kind of chase movie which um you know i'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get to in in a moment with, with more details on that but but um yeah i mean aside from that you as you said you pretty much hit the nail on the head there so i really can't add much more to, to what you said it was it was all perfect i feel like i'm like i say finding little things that aren't quite right but i still think it's so perfect yeah, and yeah. Yeah. and and I, I really do. And let's get to, um, obviously, the chase. Because the mummy himself, uh, he obviously is, is wanting to get these organs. Basically, they say that up until he, he gets everything that he needs, uh, he won't be at full power. So it's only when he gets the final organ that he needs. And it's, it's actually quite horrifying, really, because... He specifically takes a character's eyes mm. and the guy has like holes in his eye sockets. It's quite gross. And it still looks really good, actually, as mm, an effect. Mm. 
the mummy is between the man and, and Evie. Um, and Evie obviously recognises him as one of the Americans and asks him for help. And then all of a sudden the man is like, you know, my tongue, you know, he took my tongue. <laughs> and then, then that's when the mummy can actually speak. Um, and he obviously speaks in ancient Egyptian, which Evie understands uh, what he's saying, which I think is pivotal to the actual movie itself because I think she could have quite easily been damsel in distress but she's not she's the only person who actually understands what he's saying um when he's speaking um so she knows that she that he's calling her an axon moon um and he is obviously quite infatuated with Evie they're basically they end up leaving Hamanaptra eventually the mummy is still not fully powered. He, they basically escape. Essentially, they they're gonna return to Cairo. Evie is well. We need to fix this. We need to to sort this out. And Rick is like, well, what what's we? You know, you did this. Yeah, yeah. I am leaving. Like, I am having nothing to yeah. do with this. You know, we are not we. You know, and Evie is very insistent that she will fix this. Um, she's not just gonna run away. She is going to get this resolved. She's going to sort this out. And then we have some wonderful scenes of um, certain plagues. So in, in actually in Hamanaptra, you had the locusts. And then in Cairo, you have, I assume it's like, it's like fire raining from the sky. Um, so it's not a plague per se, but it's, it's like, they talk about it. They, they talk about the, the curse and about what Imhotep would do if he was released and it's like fire, then the fires rain down on Egypt or something mm. like that is, is what they say. Um, and yeah, it's basically just a load of fireballs just like hitting people and it's quite gruesome. But I think they realise then that the enormity of the issue at hand, like Imhotep's only ever going to get stronger. Mm. He's going to get what he needs to become full strength. And then once he's full strength, then essentially it's the end of the world um because then you're going to have a full strength mummy doing everything yeah, yeah. so I mean, it's funny the um that that scene with the the fire raining down from the sky again it came um to me whilst watching this that um you know that is actually one of um the curses that god puts on the ancient egyptians um for enslaving his people the the jewish um and one of the curses is that he will you know he will make fire rain from from the skies and and so again he it, it shows kind of how the the movie has, has kind of blended in various different films and, and different elements into um into its own story and, and done so in in such a a, a dramatic way and such a, a a well-polished way as well um and yeah i mean i was half expecting it to be you know frogs and plagues and and um, there's even reference to locusts in in this film as well, and and flies, which mm -hmm. is another classic kind of biblical um, thing. So so yeah, clearly you could see Stephen Summers was was trimming a lot of trees when he he was putting it together. But I mean, again, that that wasn't a problem for me because he does it so well. So you know, you kind of just tip your hat and say, well, fair play, mate. You you know, you you've really pulled it off here. So yeah, that that was kind of interesting to me. That that scene, I did enjoy that. Yeah. Once Imhotep is fully regenerated, uh, obviously we have quite a few scenes where the Americans are specifically targeted because they have what he wants. Um, 
So he targets them specifically. Um, why they're not a bit more scared of him, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I don't think they completely understand the level of what's going to actually happen to them. Um, because they don't seem to be all that bothered that they've got a mummy after them. Um, but I don't know, maybe maybe that's an American <laughs> thing. I'm not sure. Jonathan does kind of, you know, give the uh, classic line, Americans, um, you know, because they're in the in the movie, they're very gung ho. You know, they just basically shoot their guns all the time, everywhere, um, acting a little bit like what you'd expect a cowboy to act mm, like mm. so you know maybe they just don't have the fear because they're just like well you know if he comes for us we can we can sort it out we can take him on um i'm not entirely sure but once imhotep is fully regenerated he no longer looks like a mummy now he looks like arnold Vosloo, um and he's basically dressed in in robes thankfully when he was a mummy he didn't have clothes but when he became human like he did have clothes which was very thankful <laughs> because no one wants to see uh, a naked man walking around yeah. egypt um so so that's good but ultimately uh he wants evie so he one of the things that he manages to do is uh encourage um a slave army essentially i think they call it uh, the boils and sores mm. so you have a massive crowd of people who were just kind of chanting Imhotep, Imhotep. <laughs> they are the ones who actually get the the final guy that Imhotep needs to become fully regenerated. And they end up cornering uh, the team who are now joined by uh, Ardith Bay. Imhotep basically says, look, you know, come with me. I will spare your friends, but I, I want you to Evie. Um, and Evie agrees to go with him, um, but he, because he's the mummy, he's not to be trusted, and he orders the his slave army to kill them anyway. So, um, so luckily, yeah, they 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 do manage to escape in the sewers, which is good because no one wants to see your heroes die a terrible death from a mummy slave army, uh, which is great. Um, and Evie is obviously now going to be used to regenerate an axon moon because imhotep is fully powered he can travel by sort of sandstorm um which is probably the only effect that i think really looks a little bit dated mm, yeah. um is not not so much the traveling by sandstorm but obviously once rick gets um the air force his air force friend and I've, the name of the character escapes me um Ooh. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've forgotten his name. But it, the the actor passed away just after the movie was yeah, um, yeah, that's right. was made. Mm. Um, it's basically a retired Royal Air Force uh, gentleman who is all like, "Oh, tally ho! Yeah, let's <laughs> kill those bad guys." You know, proper like stereotypical mm. English Air Force pilot. Um, they they use him to obviously get to the desert to where um, Imhotep um, and Evie are going to be. Um, and um, yeah, you've got the weird kind of face in the sand, mm. I guess, which they're shooting at, which I'm like, don't shoot at no. sand. Like, that's not going to help. It is terrible. <laughs> I mean, the whole kind of the fact that he can control the sand mm. is impressive. 
but they are just shooting sand. It's not like they're shooting him in the face, but I kind of feel like that's the only real effect that really looks very dated yeah. now yeah. is the face. I mean, they're obviously working to, to kind of what they have. And I think because the mummy himself, when he's a mummy, looks so incredible. And even when when he's not fully regenerated and he's got those like patches on his face that go sort of straight into his cheeks and you can see the teeth and you can see the inner workings of the, the body uh, before he's fully regenerated, I still think look really great. But the whole face in the sand is a little bit silly. Um, and then he ends up, the face in the sand ends up swallowing the plane, um, which I guess an old plane probably could be affected by sand, uh, you know, if it gets into the engine and obviously it clogs up. I mean, anyone who's ever been to a beach knows that, you know, you get sand everywhere. <laughs> Literally, anytime you go to the beach, it doesn't matter if you sit down, you're going to end up with sand in your mm -hmm. pants. I don't know how it gets in there, but it mm -hmm. does. Yeah. How did you feel about the whole face in the sand and all of that do you think it holds up or do you think that it just looks a bit naff yeah i'd have to agree with you to be honest i i didn't think it was that great by today's standards i mean as you rightly said you know we we do have to put these things into context and bear in mind that obviously this was you know the the mid to late 90s when this film was shot and um you know whilst technology was was coming on in leaps and bounds during that era um you know by comparison to to what is achievable now on, on the screen it, it, it's not quite right and and i was a bit like you in that um scene where they're they're in the um they're in the plane and they're being chased by the the face of sand i was kind of like what, what rick why on earth are you shooting at it it's sand like you're really not gonna <laughs> do anything by shooting at it it just it just kind of seemed like the the last desperate action of a of a man who'd really mm. run out of, of ideas and options was, was just like sod it i'll just shoot it <laughs> and yeah um and it kind of seems a bit ridiculous and i guess in a way that that set piece works because as said at that point in in the story um you know they were desperate i guess and they didn't really know kind of how they were going to combat imhotep and um you know clearly by that point in the story his his powers are, are vastly beyond anything that you know rick could have done at, at that point um but yeah it was kind of funny to, to rewatch it now and think oh blimey that's really not aged well has it <laughs> like, but, but um you know it's, it's, yeah. it's still it, uh, i like the idea in 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 concept uh but mm. yeah the execution perhaps given as, as said compared to to what is capable we're, we're capable of now and and the kind of things that we see in movies nowadays it's not really that great yeah <laughs> no but i think as well this is a movie that kind of thrives a little bit on its ridiculousness yeah, yeah. uh so as a movie it doesn't take itself all that seriously which i kind of like because Again, going back to that ridiculous reboot, it took itself so goddamn oh, seriously yeah. that it was like you couldn't have fun with it. Whereas with this, it it knows that it's being ridiculous. And it's kind of like, I know I'm ridiculous, but I don't care because I'm such good fun. And it's like, you just kind of go along with it because even though they're shooting a sand face, like you say, you kind of feel like Rick's at the end of his tether now because there's this fully regenerated mummy that's going to cause havoc on the world. And, you know, he needs to rescue this woman 
because he doesn't know what Imhotep's going to do to her. You know, they need to do something. And really, they can't save the world without Evie. She's she is literally the key to to saving everyone. So they need to have Evie. They kind of haven't got a choice. And I kind of feel like at that point, like you say, like he's run out of ideas. He doesn't know what to do. So he's just going to shoot <laughs> because I guess because we've mentioned that Americans in this movie just like to shoot yeah. lots randomly because it doesn't take itself too seriously. It. It. It treats its premise as ridiculous and it all it kind of it has fun. It the movie is having so much fun at this point, even though it's obviously quite a serious part of the movie. Sort of throughout it, the movie has fun, so you have fun. And I kind of feel like that is kind of sums up the movie for me a little bit. But obviously they do eventually manage to find Imhotep. He is essentially gonna sacrifice Evie uh, to resurrect Anux and Amun. Her body is, is interesting because you would imagine that well, she obviously died at the same time, so 3,000 years ago, and yet she is still wrapped in bandages and still quite intact, which I always kind of have a little bit of question about that because surely, if anything, she should be dust, but she's not. She wasn't... It implies that she was mummified, and obviously we don't know what happened to her specifically because we know that she committed suicide, and maybe there was a specific ritual that they did to her because of that. But as as far as mummies go, she's quite very kind of atypical mummy looking with the bandages. And and I'm not sure whether that was like a stylistic choice or whether that was just a, well, we can't afford to have another mummy, you know, that looks like Imhotep running around. So let's just put some bandages on her uh, and make her look a bit more like a typical hammer horror mummy the entire end third of the movie really is the fact that he wants to um resurrect anux and amun um and he has in to do so he has to kind of take the spirit of evie and put it into anux and amun but then they're kind of alive at the same time so i'm still not sure exactly what he needed evie for because Anux and Amun is kind of running around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's Yeah, yeah. It's it is yeah. what it is. Like maybe I I don't know. Maybe it was like a partial transition or something. I'm not sure. But um, but yeah. And then you get this kind of wonderful scene with with Rick, who kind of jumps into the scene and and frees Evie um, sort of partially, and then he gets attacked by mummies and. What I find completely fascinating about this scene is Brendan Fraser was fighting nothing. So at the time, obviously, the CGI mummies hadn't been put into the scene. So when Rick O'Connell is basically fighting these mummies, he's he was choreographed to do certain things at certain times. And they basically just kind of put the mummies in. But it looks so good. Like, it looks like he is genuinely fighting hmm. mummies. But then there's a making of um, the uh, documentary thing on, on YouTube, which I had a little watch of. And there's you can see the, the specific scene where he's basically going through these motions, attacking these creatures that aren't actually there. Um, and, and we forget sometimes that obviously a lot of work in movies nowadays is done on green screen. So, you know, 
actors are acting against nothing or against a tennis ball on a stick or but back then it was it wasn't it was something that was kind of coming into uh the you know the whole cgi and and it was something that was becoming quite prevalent in in movies but to act against something that's not there and you're not sure where something's going to be um i i find that quite fascinating mm. because you you haven't really got anything there that you can sort of bounce off or react to or so the fight scenes specifically i i think that are are done very well in this movie because they're they're serious fight scenes but there's very comedic element to mm. them and you kind of find that throughout the movie really is that there's little comedic things kind of planted everywhere and little lines and little in jokes and um and just general performances that are actually very very funny and obviously most of the laughs come from benny uh and he's he is basically just there but i think that rick delivers some very funny lines evie has some very funny lines jonathan has a lot of very funny lines because he's a bit like benny and that he's a bit of a coward and and he's kind of only there for the treasure but because he's evie's brother he kind of gets away with it a lot more but i kind of feel like he's actually a little bit like benny really Mm. jonathan's really the one who saves the day in a sense that he is reading from the book so this is the book of the living in order to to kill imhotep um and he doesn't know what a particular um egyptian uh word is and so he has to ask evie but at the time evie is actually fighting anuxana moon who has a knife and is obviously trying to kill her so uh she basically asks him you know what does it look like and he's like a stork and she tells him it's a menaphus and the fact that she knows a menaphus jonathan can actually finish the transcription and essentially send imhotep's soul uh back to hell um and then he becomes mortal and um and i always find the the scene at the end quite sad because as i've mentioned this is a this is a love story essentially for for imhotep and anux and moon and that's all that imhotep wanted was he was going to release all these plagues and all of this destruction on the world but he was going to do it for anux and moon because he still loves her so much after 3000 years that he just wants her back and then to see her die again jonathan actually ends up getting control of the mummies um and he uh tells uh, the mummies with big swords to kill Anux and Amun, so Imhotep has to watch Anux and Amun die again, uh, and he's obviously very upset by that. And then, for when he dies, I find that very sad because I kind of feel like all he wanted was to be with his one true love, and and now he's just gonna die, basically go into a pool and die, uh, and then he basically becomes a mummy again and then he dies and it it's it's quite sad actually yeah, it is i mean I, I always kind of have this rule when i'm watching movies um with an antagonist i i always kind of feel like for me an antagonist a good antagonist one that i'm going to enjoy should be either one of two things they should either be you know an absolute sneering sniveling scenery eating you know that type of bad guy that is just (laughs) so so bad that they're just you know that they're fun to watch or they should 
be somewhat sympathetic and a little bit tragic and there should be mm-hmm. something to their story that makes you kind of look at it and go okay well you know maybe their methods are, are wrong but you know i can kind of understand where they're coming from and in the case of imhotep you you really do kind of feel it a little bit for him because he you know he through no fault of of his own fell in love but fell in love with the wrong person um and was punished for it uh, quite severely um yeah okay you know you can certainly argue that the the methods he employed once um brought back to life to uh, to try and reconnect with his love are, are questionable at best um but you know ultimately he he manages to do that only for her to be snatched away again right at the end and for him to be sent to his death again and it's just like mm. You know, can't the guy get a break at all? Like, not get <laughs> five minutes with an Uxunamun yeah. just to say hi. How's, it been? <laughs> you know, how's, how, how's the afterlife been treating you? I've been waiting for you. You know, so um, yeah, it, you do feel it a little bit for him. You you do at the end. It, it's quite sad. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about villains because a lot of movies now you've got a. It's almost like a cardboard cutout villain of oh, well, I want to destroy the world. And I'm always like, yeah, but why, Mm. though? (laughs) Like, why do you want to destroy the world? What's in it for you? Like, um, and like like you say, you either want a villain who's who's just completely evil, but fun to watch, Um, like Hans Gruber, Mm. for example, Mm. you know. Hans Gruber is a despicable person, but boy, is he fun to watch. Like, Alan Rickman is so phenomenal in in Die Hard. Um, But, yeah... May may you rest in peace because he's very very fine actor and much missed. Um, and but ultimately, I think you want to understand your motivations of of your villains. Um, and and love, I think, is something that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, what you've experienced in life, or you know your religion or whatever. You will always understand the motivation of love and when you you find someone who you have that connection with and obviously like you say it probably wasn't the greatest thing that for for Imhotep to you know to rain all this destruction on the world just to be with his lady love but ultimately you you can understand if you had one more chance to be with that person who you loved so much and then lost you absolutely would and it would kind of be a situation of, well, I don't care what happens to, to anyone. I mean, obviously, I think most people would draw the line at causing death and destruction to the whole world just to be with your ex. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's I think that anyone can understand that motivation and feel sympathy, you know, and empathize with with Imhotep in a way. And I think that's what the movie does so well is that it would be very easy to just kind of well, Imhotep's just the bad guy and he just wants to destroy the world. Um, but it's not that. It's The destroying of the world is, is a bit of an afterthought for Imhotep and he kind of doesn't care about it. Um, but ultimately, he just wants his lady back. It's actually quite a sweet story in that regard. Um, and like I said earlier, the romance between Rick and Evie is... Also, it feels very genuine and, and very kind of heartfelt and it, it kind of grows as the movie lets it grow, which is nice because obviously, like we've said, the Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss have this wonderful chemistry sort of throughout, which which helps immensely. 
it ultimately is this kind of perfect blend of you've got the action, the adventure, horror, comedy, and the romance. And it all it's all like this this perfect package where each part feels complete. You know, you can't say it's not a complete horror movie or a complete comedy mm. or a complete action adventure. Yeah, yeah. It's all of those things kind of mashed up into this sort of wonderful package. Um, and a lot of it feels like it was actually really well thought out. Like it wasn't just, oh, well, we need Rick and Evie to get together at the end. Mm. Um, it feels like it was it's woven kind of throughout the movie and it's it's not just there to service fans. It's there because it works for the story. I feel like we've kind of gone through the, the plot of the, the movie quite quickly, but I, I also kind of feel like if anyone's seen the movie, then they kind of know all of the the plot kind of details anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of a bit more important to focus on maybe more so the the fact that the, the movie is like this complete genre mix that you don't get very often. And I think we've mentioned Indiana Jones and I think Indiana Jones is probably the only point of reference that you could argue also does all of those things because Indiana Jones also has gone into like horror, um, you know, like with um, Temple of yes. Doom, for example, still frightens the life out yeah. of me. <laughs> uh, completely. Um, and and obviously the the, the comedy, uh, the Indiana Jones know, and the action adventure. So I think it's it's something that it's understandable that Indiana Jones is the obvious kind of reference point for this movie. Um, but again, I I would argue that I I love this more than any Indiana Jones movie. Um, but then maybe that's just because, like I said, I I've always felt like I have a connection to it. Um, it was the movie that I rented the most from the video store <laughs> when when video stores were a thing. It was always like my go-to, a bit like comfort food, I think, sort of back in 99, 2000, that it was a movie that I could stick on, I could enjoy, I could appreciate all of the different genres that were in it. Um, and there are plot holes, there are things that the characters do that are silly, but ultimately it doesn't matter because it is... It it feels like lightning in a bottle. It feels like, how could they ever do a movie like this ever mm. again? <laughs> I don't think they can. No, no. I mean, as you said, they, they caught lightning in a bottle. And, um, you know, when, when you have a, a movie that does um, so many things well in the way that The Mummy does, um, you kind of, you, you kind of just don't care about the... the the things that it does get wrong, which, which are not many anyway. Uh, I mean, if you have, mm -hmm. you know, if you imagine a, a kind of a scale of, of, of a good movie and you've got the good stuff on one side and the bad stuff on the other, then, you know, um, as long as the good outweighs the bad, then generally, you know, you're going to have a good time. And, and the thing with The Mummy is there's a lot of stuff that's really good. As we've said, you know, the um, the characters, the lead characters, the action scenes, the, the visual effects for the most part. Um, you know, the plot is quite fun. It's quite engaging. Um, the dialogue is pretty good for, for the most part as well. Um, you know, there, there's so many boxes that, that it ticks. The cinematography is, is great. As I said, there's really mm -hmm. just some incredible shots in, in this movie um, that really kind of capture the, the essence of 
um, the the place and the setting and the time um, superbly well. You know, when you've got all that stuff, then really the you know the the few negatives that there are kind of you you can kind of live with it. You know, you can live with that um, because it's far mm. it's really difficult to find the perfect movie anyway in in my opinion um you know even some of the movies that that some people herald as as uh, absolute you know classics and and finest ever made um if we wanted to nitpick we, we could find nitpicks with them but um yeah definitely but you know that's not what being a, a movie fan is about and I, I always feel if you're a movie fan then you know, there's there's something in the mummy for you to enjoy, regardless of what type of a movie fan you are. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, it's it's just a, a brilliant, brilliant movie, brilliant. Yeah, I really hope as well. Like I mentioned earlier, it's uh, it's the twentieth anniversary of the movie this mm. year, and a lot has been made of other movies that are turning twenty this year. Generally, nineteen ninety nine is seen as one of the greatest sort of modern years for movies um so many amazing movies came out in 1999 the next movie i'm going to be doing on this podcast came out in 99 and it was one of the biggest movies of the year the matrix uh which is obviously still regarded as as one of the greatest modern movies i think um and still so talked about and so loved um you know through through the movie community but with any movie anniversary, inevitably, uh, people start talking about the movies again. And I know this year that quite a lot of articles have come out about The Mummy. Um, and I think a, a couple of podcasts have already featured The Mummy. And I wanted to feature it just because it's literally like my absolute favourite. Like I say, it's it's like comfort food. I can sit and watch it and enjoy it every single time and get something new from mm. it every single time as well. And there's not many movies that... You can do that with because sometimes you can enjoy you can watch a movie once and enjoy it, but find it a little bit draining. Mm. Um, and you might think, well, I'll never watch that again. But I enjoyed it that one time I watched it. Whereas a movie like The Mummy and obviously we both live in Britain. So we know there's a channel uh, over here called ITV and an ITV does occasionally, very regularly, bring out The Mummy and The Mummy Returns on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. And, and honestly, if it's ever on the TV and I think, oh, well, I'm not doing anything, I'll just, I'll just watch mm. it. You know, <laughs> I just sit there and watch The Mummy. And it's like, I've seen this movie so many times, but I will happily just sit and watch it. And there's not very many movies that I can happily say that I will do that mm. with. Um, but... Just interestingly, um, so as I mentioned, this movie came out in 1999, which was a massive year for Mm. movies. Um, So this was the sixth highest grossing movie of 99. So obviously in 99, we had Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which was literally the biggest movie of Mm. the year. Um, Can't say it's the best movie of the year, personally. (laughs) Uh, But still, financially speaking, it was the biggest. Um, and uh, second of the year was Sixth Sense which again such uh, I mean everyone was talking about the Sixth Sense back in 1999 Mm. and about the twist and I think it's one of those movies that you watch it once and then you realise what the twist is and then you watch it again knowing what you know but then you never watch it again (laughs) Um, so I can't say I've watched it in a long Mm. time but and that was followed by Toy Story 2, which is 
probably my favourite Toy Story currently. Mm. Even now, Four's come mm. out, but I still love Toy Story 2. Um, and then The Matrix and uh, Tarzan mm. as well, uh, which came out in 1999. Was that uh, so, Disney's Tarzan, the animated version? Oh, yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that because this movie's 20 years old now, that I, I really hope that people will actually think, oh, well, I haven't seen it, so I want to see it. And I want to see what this movie is all about. But I, I mean, I, I think the majority of people probably have seen it mm. uh, because, like I say, it's always on TV. Uh, so, um, but there might be people who might be put off by the fact that it does have horror elements in it. Um, and obviously, we didn't kind of go into the Scarab Beetles in... Uh, a lot of detail but the scarab beetles are probably the most horrific mm, yeah, uh definitely. the fact that they can kind of go under your skin yeah. and eat you from the inside mm. uh that's quite it horrific <laughs> um but i i hope that with the 20th anniversary that more people will actually watch it and appreciate mm. it um a little more because i think it definitely deserves it and i know that a lot of people do love it it's not like it's a you know a movie that didn't do so well and is finding its feet 20 years later you know because it did do mm. well at the box office it did well enough to warrant a sequel i mean it, it like i said it was made for 80 million it made 415 million dollars so and the day after release the studio called steven summers and was basically like we want mm, another yeah. it was like thor in the coffee shop i like it another <laughs> and the other thing i like about this movie is although it ends in a way you could argue would be you you could make a sequel quite easily. It's not like it ends and everyone dies mm. or anything, but it's also clearly a standalone movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that no sequels were intended. Mm. It finishes it in a nice, lovely way where they kind of go off into the sunset. They happen to have all of this treasure uh, in the camel, and Rick and Evie kiss, and it's lovely, and they're perfect. Um, and I think that's another reason why I was never a hundred percent keen on the mummy returns because i think it's a decent enough movie but i just felt like the chemistry between rick and evie is so much better yeah. in this movie kind of because in the sequel they're married yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah. like I mean, the there's changed, there's not it, by the time the yeah yeah it definitely has oh and it was nominated for an oscar for sound there so there you go it was nominated oh, for an oscar okay. uh but it didn't it didn't win oh, it oh, um so do you know what i've mentioned the mummy remake a lot more than i wanted to <laughs> i didn't want to talk about that only anybody wants to but <laughs> oh my god why um so the mummy returns i don't enjoy it as much no. i i'm more than happy to sit and watch mm -hmm. it and i think there are parts of it that are enjoyable um interestingly i found out that the the vfx wasn't finished for oh the movie. yeah yeah and you can tell uh, and you can tell <laughs> yeah yeah uh because it doesn't the the cgi does not look no, as good um it it really kind of suffers um i think the because obviously you've got all of the cast back and i think it's fine um if you specifically like the first movie um and you're interested in what the characters are getting up to uh afterwards then you can watch the mummy returns and i think you'd enjoy the mummy returns but it's n it's no way as good as the first yeah. one yeah. um it's and, and part of the reason for me is because you've got a child yeah. <laughs> and i know that sounds terrible but the child actor isn't particularly brilliant no. yeah I, I would have to agree um he's um he does that that thing that 
child actors sometimes do. And, and this is why I have such a tricky, <laughs> a tricky um, relationship with child actors in films in general. He, he kind of over exaggerates things. And I don't know if that's, yeah. <laughs> um, if that was down to the director telling him to, oh, you've got to play up, you know, play up the fact that you're scared, play up the fact that you're, you're being a cheeky scamp and, you know, the, do all of that. Um, I, I don't know if, if that's the direction he received or whether that's just what he brought to the character. But, you know, the, the problem with, with having children in these types of roles is that they, because they're not, they're, they're not actors yet they haven't had lived experience yet it, it's in their nature to kind of you know to to as said to over um overperform almost i mean you know if, even if you think about it when we were kids and we were doing our school plays you know if, if we had a role we were going to make damn sure that every line was mm -hmm. said with gumption and gusto and that all the people sitting at the back could hear me um yeah you know, that that's because that's what children do and um, that's kind of what he does in, in um, as, as a character in The Money Re Mummy Returns. And it just becomes really grating after a while. <laughs> really, really mm. grating. I mean, after about sort of 10 minutes. I mean, I, I after we um, watched the original Mummy, I, I went and watched like the first 15 minutes of The Mummy Returns. Um, and yeah, like within... 15 minutes I was like you know I can't even really get through this and not because <laughs> not because of anything specifically with the, the script or the plot at that point but just because this kid was doing my head in so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally hear you on, on that one like I say it's not a terrible movie by any stretch no, yeah, it, it does a reasonably good job of, of updating you on these characters and Evie gets basically a bit more to do when she gets like this backstory set in ancient Egypt and it's it's all a li it feels a little bit contrived mm. and i can't forgive the mummy returns as much as i can forgive mm. the mummy um but yeah i guess if you enjoy the mummy then you probably will enjoy the mummy returns but just don't expect the same chemistry and the same characters because obviously the characters have grown um they're at different points in their lives and then we had tomb of the dragon emperor yeah that was bad uh, which <laughs> I only saw once mm. and I basically do not want to see again yeah. because I kind of feel like they obviously wanted to bring the characters back but Rachel Weiss quite rightly refused mm. uh, because she thought it was yeah. trash and it is trash. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Oh, and obviously we didn't mention that in The Mummy Returns we're introduced to the Scorpion King. Oh, yeah, of course. The Rock. Uh, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson mm. in one of his earliest roles. Well, we say it's Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but it's actually a CGI video yeah. game character <laughs> yeah. from like 1995 <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, it's it looks horrendous, mm. um, and I don't. And to be fair, I'm a big fan of The Rock, and I think The Rock is very funny, um, and I love quite a lot of his movies actually. But even I think The Rock is not ever going to be advertising the fact that he was in the movie returns no probably not i think he, he's kind of moved on from that now and is like yep i yeah. did that thing a couple of years ago but let's not talk about that let's talk about the fast and furious franchise please thank you yeah um because he was in a scorpion king movie which i don't think i ever saw oh did uh, you not? to be I honest oh uh, was it terrible pretty much yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> what did you see? Did you see any of the four direct-to-video sequels? I did not. No, I skipped all of those. And I will <laughs> tell you that I literally only watched um, the Scorpion King spin-off because I was a big fan of The Rock as a as a wrestler um, back at, during his wrestling days. Um, so I kind of felt a sense of loyalty and had to, I felt like I had to watch the movie. Um, and also because it had Kelly Who in it as uh, um, uh, as a sorceress. Uh, and I just have a massive crush on Kelly Who, so I've got to watch anything that she's in. But, um, but aside <laughs> from that, it, it literally is what you would imagine. I mean, I think the bad guy in it is um, an actor who was in Casualty. I, I can't remember his name now. His oh. name escapes me off the top of my head. Um, but he's just awful. Um, but okay. then, you know, the rest of the movie is awful too. And it's also got an annoying kid as well. So, yay. <laughs> <laughs> Literally everything that you yeah. hate is in this movie. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, let's not recommend any of the Scorpion King movies to anyone. Yeah. Um, and obviously we have mentioned, well, I say we, I, I mean we as in me, <laughs> has mentioned the Mummy 2017 uh, a few times mm. only because it's very easy to see where that movie went wrong when you look at the mummy 1999 yeah. because that movie was so right yeah. um do you want to tell us a little bit about what you think about the mummy reboot at all oh goodness me um so i have a cineworld uh membership card which allows me to go and see movies whenever i want and um I remember when this movie was advertised, they were talking about it being part of this new franchise that, that Universal mm -hmm. Studios was creating called The Dark Universe, um, which was essentially going to be a series of films featuring the, the classic Universal monsters that they had um, access to. So the creature from the Black Lagoon, Dracula, um, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, there were going to be all these new movies. Um, and they were all going to be in connect, interconnected with each other, sort of MCU style. Um, and I remember immediately being hugely, hugely sceptical of it because what they were talking about doing just, just didn't really make any sense. Um, I know, you know, in, in the classic Universal movies, you occasionally had, um, you know, a character appear in, in a movie or two, but... Um, it certainly wasn't done with a view to building a franchise. It was done because, you know, at that point, that's what they wanted to do with the stories with those characters. Um, so I felt they were off to a bad start already. Um, then I saw the trailer for the, the Mummy 2017 and I thought, oh, God, this doesn't look good. Um, but I found myself at a loose end one day with my Cineworld card and thought, you know what, let me just go and see it anyway so I can say um, Ooh, I've seen mistake. it. And, <laughs> and boy, was that painful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm the one positive thing I can say about it is um, hopefully it hasn't damaged Sophia Batella's career too much, um, who's someone I really love and I, I really hope that mm. she goes on to, to much bigger and much better things than this. Um, and she's certainly not bad in the movie. She, she you know, she brings a lot of enthusiasm um, to her character. Mm. And, um, you know, she's certainly somebody who, who, as I said, doesn't deserve to be condemned by this absolute nonsense. 
Um, the Tom Cruise casting, I just, I just don't get it. Uh, why, why would you bring when you know what Tom Cruise is and the type of actor that he is? Why would you bring him into a movie like this, other than because you think he's hugely bankable and that people are going to come out and see the movie just because Tom Cruise's name is on the poster? Um, the visual effects are awful. The the story is ridiculous. Um, where else? Like Russell, Russell bloody crow. Sorry, I mean I should say that. But my goodness, he's terrible. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a complete mess, complete mess, and it's got mm. none of it's got none of the character of of the ninety seven Mummy movie. It's got none of the humor. It's got none of the style. It's got none of the the, the wit, the charm. The action scenes are terrible. Um, you know, even though they have access to better special effects, the the, the special effects in in um, the 2017 Mummy, I felt were were really appalling, considering how much money they'd spent. Um, it, it's just bad. <laughs> it's just bad. Like you know, let's just just let's just leave it at that. So, it's bad. So I'm guessing you didn't like it then. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> just 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 a little inkling that I've got there. Call it female intuition. I I don't know, but I'm I'm thinking it's yeah, you I'm thinking you don't like it. <laughs> I think you should just speak your mind and tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's um like I say, I I, I think I gave the movie half a star on Letterboxd because um, I hated it so much. And I think that was only because uh, the Book of Amun-Ra is in that movie. It's mm. like a very brief scene in Russell Crowe's office. You can see it on the yeah. shelf. And I'm just like, for the Book of Amun-Ra, <laughs> I will give this movie half a mm. star. Um, and it obviously tried to link it to the the original. Well, they're not obviously original, but the 1999 mm. movie. It tried to link it. Um, and otherwise it's a complete failure in every regard, uh, pretty much for every single reason you've just said. So I'm not going to bother repeating because I feel like I'd just be wasting precious vocal talent <laughs> to, to repeat that. At this point, um, I like to sort of list social media thoughts, uh, on the mummy and I have had quite a few. The first is from Sade at Offscreen Babble. She says, The Mummy is such an enjoyable and rewatchable movie. When I was younger and The Mummy was on TV, I would always stop and watch it no matter where it was in the film. It's funny, full of exciting action and two great characters, Rick O'Connell and Evelyn Carnahan. It's awesome to see Evelyn passionate about Egypt and learning about the culture. She also stands up for herself and doesn't allow anyone to speak down to her. And Rick O'Connell, I mean, come on, it's Brendan Fraser. Rick is brash at times but sweet and heroic. Also, he's freaking hot. Agreed. At Pulp Serial said, Until last year I hadn't rewatched these movies since the original home movie release. I didn't remember much. My mind was kind of blown. I was like, oh my god, this movie is an adventure pulp. Loved them. I hadn't watched the film in almost 20 years. Found the DVD set last year and decided to give them a shot. 20 minutes into the first film, I realised that these movies were adventure pulps and fell head over heels in love. I loved the first two. I tried to watch the third one on three different occasions and can't finish it. Claudia at You're on Claude 9 said the mummy is probably my favorite of the universal monsters even as a child i would always think he was the most powerful as what are you going to do wave a cross at him he will have no clue what it symbolizes i was thrilled this fact was illustrated in the film 
Also, as I've worked at a library for the majority of my adult life, when not as a bookseller and part-time professor, may I say the library scene made me physically ill. To have to rearrange all those books. Finally, and a bit off topic, my former co-worker's godson was suffering from DIPG, and his mum did the best to make his last year of life a happy one. Brendan Fraser visited Nathan and completely made his day, so I look upon Brendan and his roles with great fondness. By the way, I'm not really sure what DIPG is. Um, I might have to ask Claudia because I'm not entirely certain what that means. But it's really lovely that Brendan took the time to actually visit someone um, and make their day like that. It's really lovely. I think that kind of just summarises the sort of guy that he is generally. Just a really nice kind of guy. Um, at Kinokinomicon said, The Mummy led to what is hands down one of my all-time favourite movies, The Scorpion King. So for that, I'm eternally grateful. It was an okay movie, but I think I was a bit too young to really enjoy its schlockiness when it initially came out. And yeah, you're probably the, one of the only people who thinks The Scorpion King is your all-time fave, but you like what you like, so fair dues. Um, at Cat Hangry says, One of my all-time favourites, it has something for everyone, humour, romance, adventure, horror, and the effects and things have aged well. I never get tired of watching it. Cat at Things Cat Loves said, So much to say, I wouldn't be able to fit it here, ha ha ha. Um, and I know that Cat absolutely loves this movie, so I know that she would just have reams and reams to say about it. At Contrarian Prime said, We revisited this one last Halloween, it's peak Brenda Fraser, and it's impossible not to fall in love with Rachel Vice or fall out of love with her ever since. At Pop Prison Power said, All time fave. At Drunk Netflix said, I feel like this movie often gets overlooked because it came out in 1999, which was such an amazing year for movies. I absolutely love it, though. Over on Instagram, at Vegimorph said, Woohoo, it's one of my favourite movies as well. I could practically talk about it all day. Brendan Fraser is such an underrated actor and he has wonderful chemistry with Rachel Voice, and their characters are so great. The film is so much fun as an Indiana Jones pulp adventure throwback with a horror edge to it. And the sets and set design are so gorgeous and well realised that I'd love to explore them, the riverboat and fort especially. The fight with the Magi on the boat is a particular favourite sequence of mine. Add in some wonderful atmospheric music by Jerry Goldsmith and you've got a movie that I will continue to watch over and over again for many years to come. It's been such inspiration in fact that I'm currently writing my own pulp adventure screenplay that involves an Egyptian treasure. At the Rebooters said, We've covered this in one of our previous eps. CG still holds up today. Great casting and a great B-movie romp. Obviously no Indiana Jones, but come close to capturing that kind of spirit. And finally, Evie the Cheeky Chi said, Better than Indiana Jones, but I studied Egyptology for a long time, and that means I'm a little more than biased. So, yeah, some really great comments from everyone on Twitter and Instagram. So thank you for everyone who has given a comment. Uh, it's so wonderful to hear that you will love the mummy so much. So thanks. What I want to do now is... Uh, I want to obviously give you an opportunity to plug your show and where people can find you and how they can subscribe. Basically, you can plug Wulong Talks, you can plug uh, Bebop Rewatch if if you want to. Basically, whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do it. Lovely, thank you. Um, well, we are available just about everywhere you can get a podcast these days. Um, Wulong Talks uh, can be found on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, I believe we'll be on Player FM as well. Uh, yep, uh, and I think that just about covers it. We also have a YouTube channel where um, episodes of our podcast go up along with um, the occasional short videos that we do. Um, all of that is, is found under Wulong Talks, so just type that into your search engine and, and that should all pop up for you. 
Um, same applies for our social media accounts. We're available on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook at Wulong Talks. Um, we also do have um, a another Instagram IGTV channel as well, which we haven't updated recently, but we will be updating again going forward because we've got um, lots of little um, ideas for short vids and stuff that we want to do. And we also have a website where um, you can read some of my incredibly old blog pieces from 2016, if you're so inclined. Or you could just check out some of our podcast episodes on there. And that is at www.wulongtalks.com. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been a long time coming, I think. Um, and obviously it's been something that we've been trying to do for such a long time to get together again and, and talk about uh, basically any movie in general, um, but specifically The Mummy. Um, and I, it's been such a, an honour and a privilege to have you on here and talking to me because, like I say, I respect the hell out of you and Rich and admire you guys. Uh, you literally are the nicest guys in podcasting and I think you've proven <laughs> that you are the literally the nicest, kindest, most humble, most professional guys that are out there podcasting at the moment and obviously I am such a fan of your show and uh, and I would completely recommend anyone who's listening to this to obviously listen to you guys because I think you do such wonderful work. I am genuinely so grateful that you have come on here to talk about The Mummy with me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Em. It's, it's been a, a pleasure. And, um, you know, I always love talking about The Mummy. And uh, I get the feeling you and I could go on for about four or five hours about this. If, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, yes. If time was, you know, of no consequence to us. But unfortunately, it is. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to to be on here with you um it's been a little while coming but you know it was definitely worth the wait and um i would just say as well to to anybody who's listening to this if you haven't heard um em's appearance on wulong talks it's absolutely legendary it's done (laughs) numbers it's i think the longest recording we've ever done um but it's absolutely (laughs) worth it because um em is just such a superstar she covers so much ground so well with that movie um and the passion that she brings for you know her, her the, the movies that she loves in general is is just so infectious and, and just so enjoyable <laughs> to, to be around so um absolutely make sure you listen to to that episode on our channel if you if you haven't already because um em definitely steals the show there so but thank you again for for having us and said it it really is an honor um and we really really appreciate it thank you no thank you and yeah my my reputation for long podcasts precedes me because i think every single podcast that i'm on has to be at least you know two and a half three hours long so uh i i I do have a bit of a reputation uh, and even on this podcast whenever i have a guest on um, I have a reputation for exceeding my allotted time and um, and yet again we've exceeded <laughs> our allotted time um, but um, it's been such a joy to have you on and I wish that we had more time to talk about this movie uh, because like you said I feel like we could just talk and talk and talk about it because there's so much to talk mm. about and so much to love yeah. and and respect and admire about this movie and how it was made and um, yeah everything is just so wonderful mm about it um so um so yeah it's been so great but unfortunately i'm gonna have to wrap it up which uh which is sad but um sadly we can't be here 
talking constantly <laughs> forever. Um, yeah. Everyone, thank you for listening. Um, as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on The Mummy. And by that, I mean the 1999 movie. Don't talk to me about the 2017 no. movie because I am not interested in talking uh. about that. <laughs> uh, my next episode is going to be out in one week. Woo! Because of this extravaganza thing that I'm doing. Um, so I'm not going to be having any guests in August because I feel like if I had guests, then I could not do extravaganza. So this is literally just because we had to switch episodes around. Uh, this will be the only august episode that has a guest on and then all of the others will just be me flying solo and for the next episode i'm going to be delving into the matrix um which is obviously as i mentioned another 1999 classic um and i'm going to be taking the red pill and i'm going to be going deep deep into that rabbit hole of the matrix and i'm very excited about it but i'm also very nervous because it's a movie that so many people love and respect um and it's a movie that means so much to so many people. So uh, I'm going to try my hardest to, to cover as much ground with it as possible. So I've started researching very early <laughs> uh, to do that. Um, and if you like this episode, I've also done episodes on Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992 and 2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, and Charlie's Angels 2000. And as I mentioned, uh, I do list off all of those. Once I get to like 50 episodes, I probably won't be listing all of them because it takes a long time, but that is what I'm doing right now. Uh, those episodes can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. If you like what I do and you want to leave me a great review, as I say, and I'm sure that Jason will agree with me, please, if you like a podcast, review it on iTunes because it helps immensely to be seen um, and to be, and just to feel a little bit appreciated um, because I would really appreciate if you would leave me a great review. And while you're at it, if you listen to Wulong Talks, leave them a great review as well. Um, usually, at this point, I mentioned my Kofi. However, August is a special month. I've got extravaganza going on and it's my birthday month. And rather than ask for money for me, because I'm likely going to be getting some really nice things and probably lots of coffee for my birthday. So I'd really appreciate if instead of donating for coffee, if you do want to donate something because you enjoy the show, please instead make a donation to a small UK charity called Shine. Um, they support babies and children with spina bifida, hydrocephalus and related conditions and they provide advice and support to their families. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes but otherwise their website is shinecharity.org.uk slash donate. Any Kofi donations I do receive in the month of August I'm just going to donate them directly to Shine so you might as well cut out the middleman and please if you want to donate to the show and you like what I do then uh, please give a donation to Shine instead of me. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. And look, I may not be an explorer or an adventurer or a treasure seeker or a gunfighter, Mr. O'Connell, but I am proud of what I am. I am a podcaster. Movie should know. Movie should talk.